and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I'm Jonathan Lack. And I'm Sean Chapman. And we are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. It is the Kimetsu no Yaiba episode, also known as Demon Slayer, also known as the most popular thing in the sovereign nation of Japan today, uh, and increasingly popular all around the world, including the new movie Mugen Train. Um, for, for some reason, half of that title is translated and the other half is not. Um, yeah. And that is coming out next week here in the United States where we live. Uh, and we both have our tickets to that. It's going to be for both of us the first movie we have seen in a theater in over a year. Uh, because we are both now vaccinated. Yay. Uh, applause for vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Thank you, science. Um, and so today we are talking about season one of Kimetsu, uh, also known as Demon Slayer. Uh, if you have not seen it, pause the podcast, go binge all 26 episodes, come back, listen, and while you're listening, buy your ticket for the movie because this is a really good show, Sean. Yes, yes, it very much is. Um... Yeah, I'm very excited to, to do this podcast because I watched it when it finished airing a couple of years ago, the first season. Um, and then, yeah, it's fun to... We don't do a lot of anime on this podcast that is not Gundam. So we'll we'll get to talk about some, some, shonen, some shonen stuff. Some new shonen stuff that's not like Yu-Gi-Oh! or Naruto, which I think is like in Dragon Ball, which are the only non-Gundam anime stuff I think we ever talk about. And One Piece. <laughs> yes. You have Naruto, I have One Piece, and in the middle we meet on Dragon Ball. Yes. That's how this works. Uh, and then also Gundam. Um, yeah, because as you started that sentence, you're like, we don't talk about anime a whole lot. And I was like, what? And then you finished it and said, that's not Gundam. And you're like, oh no, yes. that's that's true. Um, so yes, uh, a fun anime. Honestly, this whole month is anime, Sean, because we did all of our Gundam 00 stuff. Now we're doing Kimetsu for this week and next week, because we're going to be reviewing the movie. Um, that'll be next week's episode. Uh, and it's just going to be fun. And like... Man, what a fun way to ring coming back into movie theaters, Sean, and mm -hmm. getting like ourselves hyped up for it. This is great. Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good time for movies if you like anime and you like Godzilla, which I like both those things, and you like both those things. So it's yeah. been if you know, if you're someone who like you're you really like, I don't know, like historical tragedies or romantic comedies or whatever, you're you're shit out of luck. But if you like dumb <laughs> bullshit from Japan, this is just great. It is. I might have to. I'm actually. I'm having to drive quite a ways to see this. It's in Cedar Rapids. I live in Iowa City. It's about a 40 minute drive. Maybe I'll just make a day of it and also buy tickets to Godzilla v Kong while I'm there and just watch that and then like go have lunch and then go watch Kimetsu. That might be a good way to celebrate mm -hmm. being vaccinated. Um, but yeah. So anyway, that is going to be the main topic this week. We've got a little bit of stuff. We got one piece of news. Um, and it's going to be a really fun one. I, I'm very happy to be doing this, Sean. I, I finished watching the show yesterday. It's great. Um, that's, we'll get into it later. We're also probably going to do just a little bit of background on the just unreal popularity of this thing. Um, because this is probably one of the most popular things we've ever talked about on the show. <laughs> yes. Yeah, by almost yeah. any metric, for sure. Yeah. So we will get into that. Um, but first, Sean, let's do some stuff. Uh, and before we get into the stuff, actually, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. And my first piece of housekeeping is, I think I am finally ready to, to unveil and talk about the new Weekly Stuff Podcast YouTube channel. I announced on the show a couple weeks ago, I had rebranded the existing YouTube channel, which was called the Weekly Stuff Podcast, Weekly Suit Gundam. And I did that because I had mostly been focusing on our Gundam stuff on that channel, um, and it had been doing really well there. And I thought, why don't we just, the same way the podcast, we have a Weekly Suit Gundam podcast and Weekly Stuff podcast, 
Um, why don't I separate the channels too? So all the weekly stuff stuff came down from that channel, uh, and it became the Weekly Suit Gundam channel, um, where which it will continue to be and to thrive, and it is a very Gundam-focused place, and I think it is good. And then I started a new Weekly Stuff podcast channel, uh, and I have been steadily re-uploading what we already had and then making videos for a lot of other stuff. Um, the reason why I can't just say, like, all 372 episodes of the Weekly Stuff podcast are on the YouTube channel right away is because YouTube doesn't just allow you to, like, upload audio and throw an image with it. They actually did used to do that once back in the day. I wish they did that still. It would be a hell of a lot easier and their processing could do it. Uh, but they don't let you do that. So I have to render videos. Um, and I have found a good workflow to do it easily that is not too taxing on my computer and does not take too much time. Um, it involves playing with the frame rate and the resolution and all this stuff. But I figured out how to do it. Uh, so I can do it a lot faster now. It is going to take a while to get all 372 episodes rendered and made for that format. I have um, over a third, and I think they're already up there, but um, there's still a lot missing. So what I have been focusing on instead, and I think this is probably the best use of YouTube right now for us, and I think listeners will agree, especially if you are someone listening to this as a bonus episode of Weekly Suit Gundam, which we are also releasing it this week, and you want to check out sort of, maybe you m met us, met us, you experienced this show through Weekly Suit Gundam first, I know we have a lot of new listeners here, and maybe you'd like to see some of the other stuff we've covered, well go to the Weekly Stuff Podcast YouTube channel, because right now we have a ton of playlists that are super cool. This is the cool thing about YouTube is playlists. You can't do this with podcasts on other platforms as easily. But on YouTube, this is the main page of our channel. And so, Sean, I want to walk you through some of the ones we have here, all right? Okay. Um, and people should go if you are, you know, long-time listeners will have heard all of this stuff, but I'm sure we have people who have not heard all 372 fucking episodes of this gargantuan beast mm -hmm. we have created. So... Uh, we've got the basics. We really love the Persona games. That's kind of how we first made our name in podcasting. We have a playlist for Persona 3 with the game and all four movies. We have a playlist for Persona 4 with the game and all its spinoffs. Not all its spinoffs. There's a lot. A yeah. lot of its spinoffs. We have a, a playlist for Persona 5, uh, which is including all the individual Persona 5 reviews or just the 12-hour Persona 5 spoiler cast where I edited them all into one video because um, I'm an idiot. Uh, so you can do all that Persona stuff. Uh, Doctor Who is our other big thing. I am so excited about these, Sean. There's two here. One, I have a complete playlist. I finished this last night of Doctor Who, the Peter Capaldi years. And it is every episode you and I ever did on Peter Capaldi as Doctor Who from the episode where he was announced as the Doctor to his regeneration from Matt Smith to him. The 50th special is in there because he's in there for like two seconds. All the way to him regenerating into Jodie Whittaker. We talked about every Peter Capaldi thing. It's all in one playlist, all in one spot. How cool is that? Very cool. Very nice. Yes. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah. It's one of those weird things where we've been doing the podcast long enough that, like, without it specifically intending to be so, it is a comprehensive yes. run of his whole whole period on the show. And I'm working on ones for. They're not going to be as comprehensive, but I'm working on ones for eleven and thirteen. Uh, the Doctors, and we'll see those. Um, I have a podcast called Doc or a, a playlist called Doctor Who 101. This is a bonus mini series we did two years ago on the show, two or three years ago, where we went through all of the classic Doctors one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then also eight. Paul McGann, who's like the in between Doctor, um, and you picked a serial that I had not seen, 
and it was um, basically introducing people to Doctor Who. But I really loved this miniseries. I know you did too. And it very, very much was the precursor to Weekly Suit Gundam. Mm -hmm. Like, that format inspired Weekly Suit Gundam. So if you like Weekly Suit Gundam, and you like or think you might like Doctor Who, Doctor Who 101 is must-listen. And it is all together in one place for the first time ever on YouTube now in this playlist. And it's all nine episodes so far. Um, Which makes me think maybe one day we'll need to do a season two of that show. Mm -hmm. uh, And cover the other Doctors so that it can be a complete 101. How... I would like to do that one day, Sean. <laughs> I mean, it's getting long enough since the revival of Doctor Who that, I mean, it's not new anymore, right? It came back no. over 15 years ago. So, Well, just on the not current Doctors, you have 9, 10, 11, 12. That's four more we could do. Yeah. Um, and the War Doctor, which I have some ideas for. So I think a second season of four or five episodes of that I want to do at some point. But anyway, the first season is on... Uh, YouTube now we have all of our year in review episodes in one place 2012 through 2020 we did a top 10 games or top 10 something every year they're all in one place for the first time our milestone episodes that's episodes 100 200 250 300 350 where we always do something big and special all in one place for the first time ever uh, including episode one which you shouldn't listen to because it's bad and old but if you want to it's there Um, our best of the decade three-parter is all in one place And then our movie series, these I love, Sean, Star Wars, The Complete Saga, every theatrical Star Wars movie, one through nine, plus Solo, plus Rogue One, one playlist right there for you in order of the movies, not in order we recorded them, so it's like a really nice order for you there. Um, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, we've got all of our really great Lord of the Rings reviews, um, made me realize we do probably need to do new Hobbit reviews because what happened is we did a big review of Unexpected Journey. We did a pretty small review of Desolation of Smaug, and then we talked about Battle of the Five Armies for about five minutes on some random podcast because we just lost interest. So one day we might have to go back and complete that project. Mm -hmm. But all of that is there for now, including some older Lord of the Rings episodes we did. Um, We've got our Godzilla playlist where we talk about Shin Gojira and the original Gojira and our big retrospective that you you put together for us, Sean, and all of the legendary movies and King Kong vs. Godzilla all in one place for you. Spider-Man on film. This one's great. Spider-Man 1, 2, 3. Amazing Spider-Man 1, 2. Spider-Man Far From Home, Spider-Man Homecoming, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, all in one place, uh, including, and those are our new reviews of 1, 2, 3, as well as some of our, there's a bonus one at the end of that playlist, which is episode 3 of this podcast ever, where we did a, another review of 1, 2, 3 when we were younger and stupider, and you shouldn't listen to that one, but if you're curious, it's there for completion's sake. Um, so you've got all those movie ones. Um, you've got Twin Peaks The Return, the best season of TV you and I have ever talked about. Every one of those, all in one playlist. That's great. So all 18 parts of Twin Peaks, one playlist. Um, the Weekly Stuff Christmas specials. We've had three of those so far. That's probably my favorite playlist, if I'm being perfectly fucking honest, because those are silly episodes. Yes. Um, that's, that, yeah. yeah, that is our, if you want to listen to this podcast when you're drunk episode, yes. like playlist, like that's the one you want to go for. Absolutely. So... I'm really excited about this, Sean. It's been really fun to walk down memory lane and put these together. You and I have really big archives now. Yeah, no, it is weird to think about... Yeah, because like when you say, oh, we have the Spider-Man playlist, it's funny to think about when you put them in order. Like It's pulled from so many different times in history of either us looking back on them or reacting to them as they came out with the newer movies. Um, yeah, we've, we've just been doing this for... 
an inappropriately long amount of time that has led <laughs> to this like very large backlog that you can do fun, cool playlists with. Yeah, so they're all on YouTube, uh, mostly uncut. Uh, some of them do not have their original theme songs for copyright reasons, um, but mostly I just barrel through that and I tell YouTube to fuck itself, and unless they block me, I don't make changes mm -hmm. um, because we don't monetize this podcast anyway, so who cares? Um, it's one day I'll eat those words if we ever get famous enough. But anyway, uh, I'm excited. Tell me if there are other playlists you want. I'm now working on a 13th Doctor playlist, uh, because that one is funny to me because you can hear us die in real time mm -hmm. going from excited for the new era of Doctor Who to me not watching it anymore and you talking about it and me responding, um, which is very And even funny. then and it was just me summarizing the season yeah. 12? 12. Yeah. 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 And we haven't even talked about the most recent one, the, the newer Daleks episode. We never talked about that. No, I... Anyway, I, I, I meant to watch it and i just okay. couldn't i just couldn't you know <laughs> yeah if we're in the middle of a pandemic i don't need to watch doctor who that's going to bum me out i'll wait until the world is a slightly brighter place for me to handle uh yeah bad, bad doctor, doctor who. who yeah yeah so i'm working on that let me know if there's other playlists you want eventually i'm going to get in the zone of hopefully just getting everything in there um but the playlist tab is what you're going to want to look at and there's a lot of fun stuff there so i hope people subscribe I hope people like it. Um, suggest playlists if there's something you want uh, from our archives. I can't make new episodes. We, we are doing that every week, obviously. Uh, Batman on Film, for instance, is an ongoing playlist. We um, are currently on hiatus from being scared of watching Batman and Robin. And there's um, just a lot of stuff to talk about. And so, you know, yes. we, we've... we've... I feel like we've had very good excuses to not do Batman and Robin so far. Well, here's what the excuses have been, Sean. Do you want to talk about Gundam or Batman and Robin? Gundam. Do you no. want to talk about King Kong versus Godzilla or Batman and Robin? Godzilla, please. Do you want to talk about Kimetsu no Yaiba or Batman and Robin? We are making the right choice every time. Yes, no, yeah, it's definitely, you just put these two things next to each other and, and it just turns out the one that's always better is the one that's not Batman and Robin. Very true, very true. Um, Jonathan, what happens if we rewatch Batman and Robin and we both love that movie to death? Will we, will we look back on these podcasts and be like, man, we were fools. It's secretly, it was the best Batman the whole time. It'll be interesting. You know, I think we will probably enjoy it more than we are fearing because there are some like so bad it's funny things in that movie. But, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't think it's as bad as Batman Forever. Batman Forever does not have Arnold Schwarzenegger singing like old timey Christmas songs in a bathrobe. So, you know, that alone gives some points to Batman and Robin. But Yeah, but Batman Forever is just such a completely forgettable movie that I've already forgotten most of what that was after we did the <laughs> podcast. I feel like I purged it and because I went into Batman Forever being like, I don't remember anything about this movie despite having seen like either all of it or big major chunks of it as a kid. And I now realize it's just because you can't hold on to that movie. It's too forgettable. Because Batman and yeah. Robin is like memorably awful. So I remember my feelings of not liking Batman and Robin as a kid. Versus Batman Forever, I had no impressions of that film at all. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, that's the housekeeping. That channel's going strong. If you're a Weekly Stuff listener and you don't subscribe to the Weekly Suit Gundam YouTube channel, you should do that because it's cool. Um, but anyway, YouTube channels, they're fun. We've got them. There you go. Uh, Sean, what have you been up to? Let's do some stuff. Um, yeah, I've been doing a, a few things. So one, I finished Diablo. The Diablo, the, the Diablo 1. Um, that I was about halfway through last week's podcast. I mean, I, I finished it Monday night, so like I 
it was not. I mean, so Diablo one's weird because in my memory, having played it as a little kid, I feel like it's a much bigger game than it is. In the same way that like Ocarina of Time is not a super long game. It's like an 18 to 20 hour long game. In my memory, Ocarina of Time is this like boundless adventure, right? Because I was a little kid when I played it. Diablo 1, I feel the same way. In my head, it's this huge game. It's like an 8 to 10 hour long game. Like, it's not very long. It's 16 <laughs> levels. Um, and and the first half of the game is much stronger than the second half. Like, I still like the whole thing. But I had kind of forgotten how much it is like a lot of games of that era. Um, like, PC games in particular. Like it makes you think of, like, Doom and Doom 2. Where... They have limited tools in terms of what they can give the player to do, meaning that when they want to make things hard, kind of the only thing that's left is to just do more and more and more enemies. So the last area of Diablo 1 is just a ridiculous amount of enemies. Every time you go to a floor, it's just like, okay, here we go. Here's just like a hundred sorcerers that shoot fireballs and teleport when you get close. It's like, I gotta, it's just gonna be like a 10 minute job of very slowly walking forward, hitting them, backing away, walking forward, hitting them, backing away. Um, Cause it's a very simplistic game in terms of your combat options. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. It was very fun to just kind of go back, revisit that game. Um, it definitely makes me excited to play the remake of two because that seems like it's going to be very good. And I'm very excited to play that game with a controller because there's something about Diablo three awakening me to the man. It's just nice to play this loot based game, just relaxing on a couch rather than having to be like, you know, playing it on a PC. There's only so comfortable you can get at a mouse and keyboard. Um, yeah, but yes. Diablo 1 is still a great game. Like, I think people, if you haven't played it and you're interested, like I talked about last week, there's a $10 version on GOG.com. Any modern PC will be able to run it just fine, obviously because it's a super old game. Um, and, yeah, it's it's very fun to just sort of enjoy some of the, like, anachronistic, or not anachronistic, like, some of, like, the sort of um, very dated elements of its design. Stuff like, I think my favorite thing in Diablo 1 is that money is an inventory item meaning that you stack gold in slots of a maximum of 5,000 gold per slot, and it takes a slot in your inventory. <laughs> and there's no stash in the game. So that's something they add in Diablo 2. Meaning that when you come back to town, the first thing you do is you use the town portal in the dungeon, you come back to town, and then unless you know you're going to go buy something, you just throw all of your money on the ground because there's not a chest or something to put it in. So you just <laughs> throw it into the fucking dirt in the middle of town and then go about your business selling items and stuff, and then you teleport back to the dungeon. Um, and when you get to the end of that game, you have such a surplus of money because it's basically near the end of the game, the only things you might spend money on are items that cost like 50,000 plus gold. So it's like huge sums of money that you're spending in one big chunk if you're going to buy a really powerful item. But that just means you have literally enough gold that it's like half of your inventory slots are full. And I love the idea. I just love the idea that there is a theoretical maximum quantity of money you can use to purchase at any one time which is five thousand gold times your number of inventory slots because you simply cannot have more money than that on you to make any purchase um so there's a lot of little tiny goofy things like that in diablo one that they very smartly like sort of clean up those design elements for two but there's something so charming to me about going back and experiencing that with one um that if you didn't play it back in the day you might have a little bit of almost like a culture shock at how kind of like rudimentary some of those design elements are but it has a, a a real charm of all its own in my opinion i want modern games to do this i want a witcher 3 patch where Geralt 
is just he walks into town like hunched over and burdened walking slow because he's got too much money and then you have Geralt just reaching into his pockets and taking gold coins and throwing them angrily on the ground and then like kids coming up and he's like no don't touch that it's my money just keep it in the dirt and then like you walk around and it remembers it's in the dirt for you mm -hmm. that'd be great uh, I did buy the game, Sean. I, I picked it up on GOG the moment we stopped recording last week because I was very excited. Uh, I have launched it and played a little bit of it, but I've been doing some other stuff, so I have not like sat down and really spent time with it. I just wanted to make sure like it ran right and everything. Um, but I did. But the first thing I did is I went over and talked to Deckard Kane and heard his silly voice, and I went, "Yep, stay I will play a while this game. and listen." Yeah, yeah, it's great. So I'm excited to play that in advance of Diablo 2 as well. Um, yeah, I've been spending a lot of time on my PC. I've been telling you guys about my saga, um, getting into video game, like, mouse and keyboard play for games. I have now finished three Halo campaigns, um, with mouse and keyboard. Halo's Reach 1 and 2. Um, and Halo 2, every time I play that game, Sean, mm -hmm. I think I'm gonna actually like it this time. <laughs> and I like it less every time. That campaign... It's so bad after the first three levels. Yeah, especially once you get to the the Sentinel factory in Halo Two, you're like, uh, oh, shit. God. Yep, we're in the because yeah. I think that first the first few Arbiter levels I like quite a bit, and then that once you come back as the Arbiter after Delta Halo, it's just like, fuck. Oh no, this is where uh, Halo you say is. you like the first few Arbiter levels, and then you go play, and his second one is where you have the fucking elevator to hell. That you're on for like forty minutes because just oh yeah just yeah once yeah when the flood come in um yeah. that stuff yeah that's the second level that's yeah. right away it's uh I guess I like it, the parts of that level where you're just running around with dual needlers and just blowing up grunts um yes and that's you have fine. like a sword and you can go invisible like that part of it is pretty good yes the section of that area where it turns into the flood. yes that is not a good part of that and game it, it doesn't fully suck I I always you know Halo is like pizza even when it's bad it's pretty good uh unless it's halo 5 that's little caesars um but like you know there are fun things about halo 2 but it always disappoints me uh, i will tell you guys i i keep putting this off i will tell you the saga of me choosing a video game mouse when i am fully done with that process because mm -hmm. i'm still working on that anyway um yeah i uh, my favorite discovery though with halo 2 sean playing at mouse and keyboard the carbine the covenant carbine in halo 2 i've always known was a really good gun what I didn't know, playing with a controller where a trigger takes some time to actuate, is that the carbine will fire as fast as you can possibly fire it. Mm -hmm. So if you are clicking a mouse with the carbine, there is like no recoil, there is nothing stopping you, you just click that motherfucker and it is super accurate and I just hugged to a carbine that entire game because it makes that game not stupidly easy because Halo 2 has a lot of like it will troll you a lot with like fucking jackal snipers and shit but like that carbine is your best friend at any part of that game because you can just it just fires endlessly and accurately um and it is way too powerful but i fucking love it yeah there's like there are quite a few guns that work that way in halo 2 that they didn't do in future halo games because i think they realized it was slightly unbalanced especially because you could you know, have modded Xbox controllers that have a smaller throw on the trigger to pull it right. faster. Um, but it's like the carbine, um, the plasma rifle, and then the needler um, all have much, much fire faster rates if you pull the trigger as fast as you can rather than just for the plasma rifle and needler. If you just hold it down, it's an auto fire weapon, but it's very slow. Um, and yes, then they, they sort of tone that down in the later games, but that would be, yeah. I would love to, to just boot up Halo 2 and just, just to see how fast you could discharge an entire plasma rifle, 
um, begins yes. in Halo 2, you can fire those things so fast, and it's just like half a second, and your plasma, plasma rifle basically explodes in your hand. I should have known I was going to like mouse and keyboard stuff when I got my Xbox Elite controller and immediately realized I vastly prefer hair triggers mm -hmm. uh, to like fully actuated triggers uh, because that's basically what a mouse is, only instead of having to move your whole finger, you move your tip and it's just it's still much faster. So anyway, um, but I, we will talk about that more next time. Um, I haven't played a lot of other new stuff. I think I said I finished Yakuza 7 last week. Mm -hmm. um, I've been playing Ratchet & Clank on PS4. That game's great. Um, that is also one of just the best-looking games on the PS5. Just with that 60 FPS patch and that game already being unbelievably like gorgeous and full of motion and action, uh, it's unreal. And I cannot wait for for the new one to see what the hell they're going to do native to PS5. But that is a that is a very good game, and I'm enjoying that. Very nice. What else have you been playing? Anything? Um. So. Yeah, I mean, I've been keeping up with, with Genshin and Yakuza 7. I'm deep in the throes of... Because I didn't play it much when I first unlocked it, the um, business management thing, just because I wanted to do more main story stuff. But yeah, yesterday I just spent like the whole day just doing the business management yeah, game. And it's, it's great. Yeah, it's very good and it's very addicting. Um, but one thing I did do, and I might talk about this slightly more in depth when we get to the Kimetsu talk, because it's kind of why I, I went out my way to watch them now is I watched the trilogy of movies that um, UFO Table, the studio that makes Kimetsu Yaiba, um, released that is an adaptation of the Heaven's Feel arc, which is the last story arc from the original Fate Stay Night visual novel series. So UFO Table is like one of their main projects that they got really big on was adapting different type moon uh, type projects, including the Fate Stay Night series. I really like all their adaptations, including really liking the original visual novel. So in 2017, and then up to late last year, the last one came out, they released three movies adapting the last story arc from that game, um, and they are fucking incredible. So I watched all three of those movies in the past, like, four days, basically, or like five days, like, watched one every other night. Um, they're all two hours long. They are incredibly good. There's You should not watch them if you have not watched the other anime adaptations you've, they've done, bare minimum, because it is definitely, you need to have that background knowledge to um, understand what's happening. So you at least need to see their Fate Stay Night adaptation, if not also their Fate Zero, which was a prequel, um, which is the first one of those they did. Um, but if you've been keeping up with that and you've enjoyed those TV anime adaptations they've done, um, like you absolutely should watch the Heaven's Feel movies because I think it's probably the best thing I've seen that Ufotable has worked on. Um, it is an incredibly powerful story. It's the best part of the original visual novel and what like they do as an animation studio adapting that into three movie parts. It kind of reminds me of the Persona 3 movies in terms of very, very smart adaptational choices how you take this much, much, much bigger story and then figure out how to sort of filter it down into its most essential elements and portray it in such a way that you don't, like, miss anything that is not there from the original story that is like a 30-hour visual novel arc, and this is a six-hour movie. Um, it is, if people are interested in it, like, one thing I would say is, like, kind of a content warning. It is a story that is about abuse and trauma. Um, and some of that abuse is of a sexual nature. So, like, people should know going in that that's the subject matter the movie deals with. I think it deals with it incredibly well. Like, it is, it's not a thing that, like, the movie has, like, a rape scene in it for, like, um, just for, to be, like, exploitative or to make it seem edgy. The story is fully about abuse and, like, the consequences of abuse on young people. Because the two main characters, Shido and Sakura, both have have experienced abuse and trauma in different ways and it's shaped their lives in different ways 
And it's very much about how do they sort of deal with that and kind of as they're growing up and try to, through their relationship with each other, grow past this, um, not grow past it, but like kind of learn how to live with that trauma and um, grow um, and progress with their lives. And so it's a, it's a pretty intense uh, series, particularly the second two movies um, where the shit gets very real. Um, but if you're interested in the series, I think it is, uh, they are three really incredible movies. That's awesome. So, okay, I am trying to figure this out. If I want to get into Fate Stay Night, because you, Sean, talk it up all the time, what do I do? There's a lot that I'm looking at here. I mean, I, I have been thinking for a while, Jonathan, that like this that might be a thing we do post-Weekly Suit Gundam is just like see, because I have no idea what the experience is like starting with the anime since I started with the visual novel, which the, the only way you can read it in English is with a fan translation. If you want to do the anime series... Basically, I think the best thing to do would be to watch Fate Zero, um, which was originally a prequel, but you can get into it without getting the original story. I think you can understand it fine. Um, and then you watch Fate Stay Night Unlimited Blade Works from 2014. The thing that's confusing is that there was an anime adaptation in like 2006 by Studio Dean, which I have not seen, but is does a very poor reputation. Um, and so I think probably That's just... what's confusing me, because I was looking at the UFO table stuff, and that's not on there you know cv obviously yeah so so, yeah. so most people that i know just sort of recommend skipping that and i would just defer to that because again i haven't watched it i know that it is technically generally speaking an adaptation to the first arc of the visual novel because the visual novel has three very distinct story arcs unlimited blade works is the second one um but they do enough work which that is the story arc that ufo table adapts in their 26 episode anime show um, and so they do enough work, I think, probably just to like watch that and not worry about the fact that there is technically another story arc that sets up some other stuff. Um, I think you probably are fine. Um, and so I would just say watch Fate Zero, watch the Unlimited Blade Works show from 2014, and then watch Heaven's Feel um, if you want to. Okay, that's a good... And then I could also play the game or visual novel if i wanted yes. right yeah i mean that is i think the original visual novel is like the best version of this story like it's it is like the best visual novel i've read i think it's like really really fantastic um but it is also very time consuming it's much much it would take a lot longer to play through that whole visual novel than it would to watch all three of those things okay so it's a it's a it's a big boy it's a big um, boy so, but you can probably just play that on, on Windows with a fan translation, it sounds like. Yes, yeah, I think, it, okay. yeah, it would be very, very easy to find the fan version yes. online. Okay. Well, I will look into all of that, because that is a, a lot of stuff. But, you know, we, we also have Gundam and a ton of other shit. So, um, do you want to go ahead and move on to our one piece of news, Sean? Yes, what's going on in the news, Jonathan? Well, this week, Legendary Entertainment, the makers of Pacific Rim and the new Godzilla and King Kong movies has announced officially, we, we knew they had this property, but we didn't know, like, they were going to do do it. Uh, they have announced that Jordan Vote roberts the director of Kong Skull Island, is officially set to direct a live-action Gundam movie for release on Netflix, written by Brian K. Vaughn, author of Why the Last Man and Runaways. It has been long in the works. Legendary has had these rights for a while. Legendary has a lot of, like, ins with various Japanese studios. I think, like, Someone who was associated with Sunrise helped found Legendary at some point. So it's, it's, it's got all of those connections. Um, so they've had these rights for a while. It's now found a home. It's going to be on Netflix. So I assume it's got like financing. It's got its director. It's got its script. Um, 
a Gundam movie is happening. I would be surprised if this did not happen. I, a lot of people are saying, like, lol, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. But, like, this is a pretty official announcement um, mm-hmm. and something that, given Legendary's recent history, it's very much in their wheelhouse, obviously. So what do you think, Sean? Uh, Live-action Gundam movie could be something we're reviewing on on these podcasts someday. Yeah, it's interesting. So the last time there was like a piece of me- because this has been a thing that has been like vaguely in like making the rounds in Hollywood forever. The same way that all this stuff always fucking is. There's always some yeah Bioshock movie or fucking Dragon Ball. You know, like the- a- Akira is the one I think. Of. Yes. Akira is always in the works somewhere and is never made. It is Schrodinger's bad movie yeah. adaptation. Yeah, you just not- always have Akira is not a bad movie. The Hollywood movie will be bad if it's ever made. That's what yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah, because you just have like this list of different properties that just sort of shuffle around in Hollywood forever. Sometimes they end up something comes of them, like the Ghost in the Shell adaptation and stuff like that. Usually, not very much. So the last time I remember there being news about this was actually like right before we started doing Weekly Suit Gundam. Um, like I very distinctly remember being like, "Oh, if we, that had been happened a little bit later, we would have talked about it on the podcast." Um, but it was right before you you cared about what a Gundam was. Um, but so, yeah, now it's, it's interesting thinking about if you want to make a Gundam movie, I'm very curious what their approach is going to be, right? Do you take the original Mobile Suit Gundam and find a way to adapt it into a Hollywood film? Um, do you look at one of the other Gundam properties, uh, because you could do one vaguely based on Gundam Wing if you want to chase that, like, Toonami nostalgia, you could make um, Iron Blood Orphans if you want to do something that's like pulling from more recent material that like the kids might be into. Um, or you could just do something that is totally original. It's just its own thing that takes the Gundam name, um, borrows some elements from some of the existing Gundam stuff, which is, you know, what the Gundam franchise has been doing forever, basically. Like there's not necessarily any reason why it has to be an adaptation of existing material in the same way that the legendary Godzilla movies are not an adaptation of pre-existing Godzilla movies. They just take the property, take some of the, like the classic genre elements associated with the property and make a new movie for an American audience with those pieces. Um, I'd be very interested to know if they want to go that legendary Godzilla kind of route with it. Or if they want to say, let's have an Amuro, let's have a Char, let's let's make a Gundam. Um, I'm really curious what their approach is going to be. I doubt they're going to do that because if you have a character named Amuro Ray, you have to cast a Japanese lead. Mm-hmm. And it's Hollywood and they won't do that because they're racist. Um, maybe Legendary would. Maybe Legendary would. They seem less racist than a lot of Hollywood. Um but, I mean, they cast Scarlett Johansson as Motoko Kusanagi from Ghost in the Shell. So, you know, they didn't change that character's name. I know that but there's Legendary weird plot didn't shit. make that. Yes, true. Yeah. yeah, but but I'm, I'm just saying, saying Hollywood, Hollywood is right. Yeah. yeah, that's my point. Hollywood is. You're right. If if they yeah they could cast a white boy and call him Amuro Ray. That could totally happen. They could cast Scarlett Johansson and call her Amuro Ray and just do it. And and you know she is the kind of person who would probably do that. Um, but yeah, I, I think my guess is that it will be in the vein of their Godzilla movies, which is that it will pull from a lot of different eras and, and ideas, but make one new story, you know, in the way that like, like Gareth Edwards Godzilla is this fascinating thing that is like indebted both to like Ishiro Honda, Godzilla is a force of nature, and like Godzilla versus movies where Godzilla is going to rip something's head off and blow atomic breath in its throat, you know, at the end. Um, I feel like we'll probably get something like that. Jordan Vote Roberts is interesting because his only other major movie is Kong Skull Island, which is the most comedic of the legendary Godzilla movies. Um, 
and comedic is not something I associate with Gundam really in any phase of its life, mm-hmm. other than unless you're going to make the SD Gundam movie, which would be weird. Um, so, but but I don't, but I'm not saying that Jordan Vogt Roberts can't do that. I, I just don't know what his like range as a director is. I think it's a good choice of director. He's very good with effects, clearly, um, and apparently like has a lot of affection for this series. Like that's something that came out is that like this is something he knows. And Legendary seems to be for all their movies hiring people who actually know the property, which is somehow an idea has that has eluded Hollywood for a long time. Mm-hmm. They they tend to get directors who hate the property and then make something bad. Uh, Legendary has not done that with their Godzilla movies. So, you know, uh, if he's a fan, that's that's one step to knowing what you're actually making. Uh, I know my suggestion for this, and it would probably be yours too, and I think if you're doing it for Netflix, this is an extra good idea, is I want them to just take the script for War in the Pocket, translate it to English, change some of the names if you have to, although you really don't because it's Bernie and Al, uh, and then just make that. Just make it. It's fine. It's a two-hour movie. It's small scale that would work on streaming very well. Uh, it would ease people into the universe. That is what you should make. And I also feel like that movie would make pretty big waves when people go to watch a movie called Gundam and they think they know what it is and then they see a war in the pocket thing and they're like, holy fuck. Um, that would be my suggestion. They won't do that, but that is a, that is the best idea I have. Yeah, it's, yeah, definitely if you want to try to adapt a, a pre-existing story, that would be the approach because... Yeah, because I think if they have the urge, because I feel like there's always the urge to, well, we got to do the, we got to just like make the thing. So we got to do, let's adapt the original Mobile Suit Gundam. And it's like, I think that that would be uh incredibly difficult thing to do. I don't know how you would do yes. that in one movie. Um, they, I mean, they, and they specifically announced this as one movie, right? This is not a, and we're planning a series of uh, five films or something that will culminate in Gundam versus Godzilla or some shit. <laughs> What if they just did it in, as part of the Godzilla universe, Sean? What if they did that? Would you be would you be okay with if it was just Gundam versus Godzilla and the whole plot is they're building new mechs? You know, yeah. I mean, I of course I would be okay with that. Like, what, what question are you asking me? Would I, Sean Chapman, like to see a thing that is Gundams versus Godzilla? Yes, Jonathan, I would. Do you want like the Doctor to materialize in there somewhere and like do something involved with this as well? Because I, I'd take that too. Yeah, no, these are good ideas we're having. Um, Here's the million-dollar question. Does the concept of new types make it into a Hollywood Gundam movie? I think if the director is someone that really likes Gundam, I think yes. It might not be called new type. I think it probably will, but they might... I think there's going to be some kind of, like, psychic mind bullshit I think will be in this movie somewhere. I would have said no very definitively if... We did not have legendary Godzilla movies where, like, King Kong picks up an axe made of Godzilla's spine and then Godzilla shoots its atomic breath on it and he cuts up Mechagodzilla with it. If the studio that did that is doing Gundam, I would actually feel pretty confident they will probably lean into the weirder side of it. And that's a good thing. Yeah. 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 I I think there will be new type stuff. Um yeah, yeah. I, I think the thing I'm just most curious about is yeah, what their like core approach is going to yeah. be with it. Well, because Netflix in the next couple of years they are making an an interesting expansion into live action anime adaptations. Like it is a concerted effort across their portfolio. The first one we're going to have is their Cowboy Bebop show led by John Cho, which. Um, that is one that, again, if you told me it without details, I would say that sounds terrible. But then you say John Cho is playing Spike. I'm like, 
Yeah, I see, I see that. Mm-hmm. That's phenomenal casting. Um, so, you know, they're doing that. Um, they've got their One Piece show that they are making, which I am so excited to see what the fuck that will be. Um, and now they're doing this. There's a, probably a couple others. But, like, it makes sense because Netflix is a global brand. Everything they make goes everywhere. This is not like Disney Plus where Disney Plus in the U.S. is a different service than it is overseas or something like that. Um, if something goes up on Netflix, it goes up on Netflix in every country except, like, some of the dictatorships they serve, like mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. Um, and so, you know, they are, go- they are you know, clearly going after shows like Cowboy Bebop and Gundam and One Piece that have these big global audiences. In some cases, like One Piece, the U.S. I don't even think is the target audience for that. Yeah. Um, and, and so that is clearly part of their strategy. And I'm very curious how this will fit in with that, what this is going to look like as it gets started. Um, are they making these primarily to like advertise the anime parts of their portfolio or are the anime parts of their portfolio going to be advertising these shows? It's an interesting question um, and an interesting move because no one else in the streaming space uh, outside of like Crunchyroll is, is doing stuff like this, you know? Yeah, I think there's just a recognition amongst uh, like media companies at this point of just how lucrative like the anime market can be for them. Yeah. Um yeah, cuz cuz Netflix has been having a slow but steady push into that market for a while. I mean, particularly like in Japan, they have started to see um a pretty significant amount of success with Netflix Japan and anime on that service. I mean, that's kind of Netflix connected. Japan has a nutso catalog. Yeah. It has just everything. And that's like partially um, connected to the success of something like Kimetsu no Yaiba, which like comes like a lot of its success doesn't just come from Blu-ray sales or original TV uh, uh like uh broadcasts. It comes from people binging it on streaming and then buying every single volume of the manga in 2 days or whatever, right? Um, right. so like, yeah, that, like, I feel like because Japan has now caught up to, um, streaming as like one of its primary forms of media consumption, cause Japan took a while and still is not as sort of full in on full digital media as, um, like America is or many European countries, but they're much closer to that level where we're now, where streaming is like one of, if not the dominant form of media consumption, um, like digital, like for video games, like digital sales have eclipsed physical sales at this point. Japan's getting to that point as well, which means that I think like we're going to continue to see that momentum. And as that momentum moves also within Japan, I think it's going to hit in waves here as well as like those deals, Japanese studios begin to recognize even more how important those deals are and how much money they can make um, by either licensing their stuff to outside places or just like finding good ways to for them to create and then market their material overseas. Yeah. And I, I, I even forgot some details here. Like Netflix has been distributing all of the post Toho God, uh, post Shin Godzilla, Toho Godzilla stuff. Mm-hmm. So all of the anime movies, the new anime that is airing now is going to be on Netflix this summer. Um, Netflix has also distributed most of those weird live action anime movies from yep. Japan, like Full Metal Alchemist and Attack on Titan and stuff like that. Um, when there is and there will be a Kimetsu no Yaiba live action movie, that will probably be a Netflix acquisition. So like, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised that there is not a live-action Kimetsu Yaiba movie out of Japan. Um, that feels like something that they should have done by be. now. There, yes, there definitely there's will been be. a stage. There's been a stage show. You can see pictures of a girl on a stage with bamboo in her mouth, and it's fucking weird. But yeah, it's there. Um, anyway, 
Should we transition, though, from this into our actual topic of the day, Sean? Yes, let's let's talk about slaying some demons. Let's talk about Yaibas and how they might Metsu the key. Let's talk about Kimetsu Yaiba. <laughs> let's start with the title. There's There was some consternation a couple weeks ago on the show when uh, I actually didn't do anything. All I did was I made a list of games that were coming out, and there was a game called Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba, and I cut and pasted into a list, and then I alphabetized that list automatically in Word, and then you got mad at me for how the list was alphabetized, um, because it should be under K for Kimetsu no Yaiba. Um, explain why the English title Demon Slayer is so unbelievably lame. Yeah, so it's just something of where... It feels like the title stuff comes from this urge to um, make it accessible, quote-unquote, to a Western audience, even though, you know, Japanese shit is, is accessible, right? So people will, like, look at Kimetsu no Yaiba and they're like, oh, it's the cool thing that, like, everybody's into. It's the same way that, like, you don't... They didn't bring over Yojimbo and title that movie Bodyguard, right? Like... <laughs> It's a movie, or it's a series that's set in Taisho era Japan, meaning it's a lot of people walking around with fucking katanas and shit. Um, although, really, they shouldn't be. They should just all be arrested as soon as they set foot. I don't know how Tanjiro got through most of Tokyo in the arc where he meets Muzan without getting arrested immediately. Um, but, um, but it's so, it's you know, it's a very, very Japanese setting. It's a very, very Japanese property. It's not something like Cowboy Bebop or something that is um, feels like its setting is more kind of, like, global. Um, because it's in space and shit. It's like, this is such a Japanese property to me that it feels weird to sort of shuffle away from the, just the Japanese title. Um, also because the Japanese title is sick as hell. It sounds yes. so cool. Like, even if you don't know anything about Japanese, Kimetsu no Yaiba just sounds super cool. Um, and it's also, I think it's just a cool title in Japanese. Um, it means, so if you were to translate the, the title literally you translate to something like sword of demon destruction the blade of destroying demons sword of demons bane whatever like fancy way you want to take away the concept of a sword that destroys demons one thing that's cool about the title is the word kimetsu does is not a like traditional japanese word it's a sort of manufactured kanji compound taking ki or oni which is the kanji for demon and then metsu which is the kanji for destroy and putting them together to make the word kimetsu it's why the title always has furigana or like a way of it shows what the pronunciation is because it's not like a real Japanese word. Um, then yaiba just is a word for sword. Um, so yeah, it's just a very cool title. And while we're talking about the title, I do want to address what is actually the thing that is offensive to me, which is the title of the movie in English is so stupid. The title yes, of the is. movie, which we'll talk about next week, is Demon Slayer colon Kimetsu no Yaiba the movie colon Mugen Train. One, don't have two colons in your title. I just hate it. It's just disgusting. It makes my skin crawl when I see it. And two, why the fuck would you not translate the word Mugen there? Like, if you're taking the localization approach of let's make the fake English title Demon Slayer to not alienate audiences, why would you not translate the word Mugen, which just means infinite, there's nothing wrong with subtitling your movie in English, the infinite train or infinity train or however you want to like take that. There's a couple ways infinity you Infinity could... train sounds great. We just had a movie called Infinity War last year. Exactly. Know? Infinite or infinity are two very cool words that you could have as subtitles and it just boggles the mind that even if you didn't have Demon Slayer and you just called it in the States Kimetsu no Yaiba the movie, I would still translate the word Mugen in that instance. I would never leave the word Mugen untranslated. <laughs> and it, it it blows my mind that 
um, how they approach the titling. But all that doesn't matter. None of that shit is actually important. Um, yeah. Let me just say one thing. Like, the funny thing to me is, you, so you explain that side of it. It's also just like as a choice of English title, Demon Slayer is like the most just like straightforward description you could give it's like if instead of calling like boku no hero academia which they just did my hero academia nice like catchy title if they had called that hero school yes. right like that would suck you could have called this show demon's bane or sword of demon's bane that would be really fucking yeah. kind of sounds like a DD campaign but you know it would be cool but they just went with like the most milk toast title um you know clearly hasn't hurt the series but it is our little pet yeah. peeve with it because Kimetsu no Yaiba is cool. It rolls off the tongue. They say Yaiba like seven times an episode. You know, it's cool. Yeah, it is also, I think it is actually thematically important that the series is named after the swords and it's like, yes. broadly speaking, it's named after the swords and not after the demon slayers themselves. Um, because, yeah, but we'll talk about that when we talk about the show. But yes, Kimetsu Yaiba, we're we're finally talking about it. It is, it is the most hip thing in in the island nation of japan and is i think on its way to being super hip over here as well i know um several of my students also are a big fan of these shows because their google school like google classroom accounts have pictures of like nezuko and tanjiro and shit um i'm like hey i know i know who all these people are i can tell it's big my class um which i have about 60 students across my three classes uh and every time i bring it up someone in one of those classes knows it so like at least all of my classes there are people in there who watch this and are excited about it so yeah and i that does not happen for all anime i, I do not have like a gundam fan in every class i teach but there's a kimetsu fan in all of them yeah but i would love to hear you sean put in context for us the success of kimetsu like the 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 moment i knew this thing was huge was at jump fest last year Eiichiro Oda wrote um, Gotoge, the author of Kimetsu no Yaiba, a very nice little conciliatory letter handing off the baton of you are now the highest selling manga because for 11 years up through 2018, One Piece was the highest selling manga in Japan every year, over a decade. So one, we just, like that was the status quo forever was One Piece sold more manga than anyone else year in and year out for over a decade. And then the year the anime came out, uh, Demon Slayer got really fucking big and outsold One Piece for the first time. And so Eiichiro Oda had to write this little nice note saying, congratulations, you are now the king. Um, obviously he has not sold more than One Piece in total, but in that year, and like this year it's going to do it too, um, it has sold over 150 million copies. And it is a short manga. It's 23 volumes. Uh, it is in the top 10 of all time of manga sales and it is the series with the fewest volumes in that top 10 yeah so yeah i think like because because let's just kind of go over the little bit like the history of what this thing is where it comes from yeah with its success and everything kind of like the way we do weekly suit gundam because i think it's quite interesting i think kimetsu yaiba represents a broader shift in the industry um that has like happened on a lot of different levels that kind of leads it to its success. But yeah, but just talking about its success, as you said, Jonathan, kind of, I think like the most recent numbers we have are it's over 150 million copies, including digital copies, which digital is a really significant part of Kimetsu no Yaiba's whole like success, both in terms of anime and the manga. The thing that I like, I'm going to just read off from here, some of the sales section of the Wikipedia page, because this is the thing that I think is just really kind of eye opening about the nature of its success. 
Kimetsu no Yaiba was the first series to take all top 10 positions of Oricon's weekly manga chart. Oricon being um, a manga like seller and then like tracker um, in Japan in terms of sales and stuff. The manga occupied the entire top 10 for a full month, and it was also the first series in Oricon's history to occupy the entire top 19 weekly rank. In October 2020, the 22 volumes at the time of the series occupied the top 22 spots of Oricon's weekly manga chart. It was the best-selling manga for the first half of 2020 with 45 million copies sold, and its 20 volumes, including the special edition of Volume 20 at the time, were among the top 25 best-selling manga volumes of 2020. Demon Slayer Kimetsu Yaiba's first 22 volumes were the best-selling manga volumes of 2020, making the series as well as the best-selling manga series in 2020 as a whole, with 82 million copies sold in that year. So that's part of what is crazy about the success of Kimetsu no Yaiba, is that it's not like One Piece, which just steadily sells well and has steadily very, very well and has forever, right? Because it's been a long, long, ongoing series. Kimetsu no Yaiba, instead of being this long, ongoing, like, monster, like a One Piece or a JoJo's Bizarre Adventure or Naruto or Dragon Ball, you know, some of those have kind of ended. Naruto kind of hasn't ended because it just sort of, Boruto's a different mangaka, but it's still that same series and it does quite well. But those just have this, like, long-standing, really powerful success that just sustains for huge stretches of time. Kimetsu no Yaiba's success is like you just dropped a fucking bomb and it exploded. Um, because it because is because most of its success also came when it was done yes. or nearing completion, which is really rare. Because when you like exactly what you're saying, Sean, let's put some names to this. So it is the ninth series from Weekly Jump to have a hundred million copies in circulation. Those other series are Kochikame, Fist of the North Star, Dragon Ball, JoJo, Slam Dunk, One Piece, Naruto, and Bleach. What do they all have in common? They're very fucking long, mm-hmm. right? And they had a big, long arc of a moment. Uh, or they have never ended in the sense of, like, One Piece, Naruto, Dragon Ball, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, this is, this is like, a totally different vision of what success for a, a series like this looks like. Because, I mean, the manga started serialization February 2016, ended serialization um, May 2020, and then a little bit after that is when you would get the last uh, volume published in the Tonkabun for- format that takes a bunch of the chapters and publishes them as a volume. Um, and near the end there, in April 2019, is when the Kimetsu no Yaiba 26-episode anime season started airing, and that finished airing in September 28, uh, 2019. And so it's like right at the end of its lifetime is when it got its first anime adaptation in that first season. Um, and what you saw was the like strategy of like anime in Japan in terms of sales has always been partially connected to a motivation to in- also profit off of increased sales from whatever the adaptation is. It's one of the reasons why adaptations are so much more common for manga and light novels is because there are like multiple revenue streams you can take advantage of with a multimedia like property like that, right? Um, But a lot of that has typically been motivated through Blu-ray sales and things like that, of physical home media. It's one of the reasons why in the kind of the otaku market that comes out from the sort of fallout of Neon Genesis Evangelion and its like industry breaking success is really sort of finding ways to, through specialty and limited edition products, 
make a lot of money off of what is sometimes a relatively limited audience. And so Blu-rays can be super expensive, but they have incredibly nice packaging. I just saw on YouTube the other day recommended me a video that was like um, a Japanese promotional video with the voice actors for Kimetsu no Yaiba for like the Blu-ray release of the movie in Japan. And it's like the nicest fucking packaging you have seen for anything ever. It's so gorgeous. And it's one movie, but it's got like three discs in it and all this special shit. Um, I've been looking at it because I'm, I'm thinking of pre-ordering it because it's got the subtitles and everything. Yeah. And it is like an art book and an art box. And like it's, and it's actually not the most expensive of these. It's about a hundred bucks and, and they can go for a lot more than yeah. that. I will tell you. But it's, yeah, but um, it's a hundred bucks for a Blu-ray with that is one, one movie. movie yeah. yeah, so yeah. which is like not what you usually would get in the states, um, and so and then that's just like one part of it. Then you would have like figures, and you have, um, I mean, you have your whole like wide range of different merchandising opportunities, and that's like part of what like sort of fuels the anime industry, um, in like the traditional again like post Eva era, and here I think we're beginning to see this is the impact of streaming on the market is that. After Kimetsu Yaiba finished its anime run um, with like what is like an incredible adaptation, and we'll we'll talk about that. Obviously, is like kind of our main topic. But after it finishes that anime run, that's where you see this massive explosion of interest. Of everyone is into the show. It hits the mainstream like a fucking train, and everyone's buying every single volume of the manga because I have also uh, the other night I caught up to basically where season one ends in the manga and I can confirm it's a really good fucking manga um, even if you <laughs> even if you have watched the anime um, and you just start from the beginning and I watched the anime when it finished airing in 2019 I rewatched it um, a couple weeks ago over spring break for this podcast and then I read the manga and so it's like if I were to be burnt out on that section of story I would be burnt out on that section of story and it's like no it's so entertaining that like you just I don't know if I'll be able to keep myself from moving on before the movie next week because it's like I really just kind of want to keep reading it, but I also don't want to read the movie part before the movie when I'm that close. Um, but yeah, but it's just such a, a compelling manga. And so that sort of synergy between streaming services allowing you to binge the series when it hits like the public consciousness and the zeitgeist and it's widely accessible to a huge number of people for very, very cheap then motivates them to buy the manga. And the fact that digital manga is so much more popular now means that they have, again, way more avenues by which for the average person to get the manga. And those like kind of barriers are lessened. So you don't have to go buy big volumes of it or volumes of it that like, you know, 23 volumes of a manga. Like that's a lot of shit to go out and buy from stores and like keep in your house and stuff me, like that. Let me put in another perspective too. Like, um, because one thing is also just the digital manga space has taken longer to develop in Japan than it has over here for yeah. a variety of reasons. Like the space in America has almost completely shifted to digital. Um, that's how Jump is done over here and everything. Um, but like, you know, one thing to know about series like One Piece and stuff is that like, if you're going to go buy like back volumes of One Piece or any other manga in Japan, you have to go to an actual bookstore. And there are plenty of bookstores, but that's a different thing than... If you are picking up the new volume of One Piece, that will always be at your local convenience store. And I can confirm that because when I was in Japan, I bought volume 95 from a convenience store. It was in every Lawson and every seven I went into when I was in Japan. Is Every single one you could buy the new volume of One Piece, right? But you couldn't buy in your Lawson volumes one through 94 because that would take up more space than they have for food, right? Yes. Um, let alone like keep them in your houses, which in Japan you generally have less space than we do in American housing, right? Um, let alone, you know, um, so these are all issues. But Demon Slayer, 
it's digital and you can just go buy all 23 volumes at once digital, right? And that's, I think, part of it too, is that the back catalog is smaller, but you're also not going to be able to go pick up that whole back catalog from one place unless you go to a bookstore. And then there's a limit on how many books you can actually push out and give to people. Um, so it's breaking sort of rules left and right in terms of how people are digesting this stuff and changing the game. Yeah, and and just creating this huge, huge explosion of popularity that then currently is has hit its zenith with the movie, which is currently the highest grossing movie in the history of Japanese box office, um, even when a it's during the fucking pandemic. It's still like, who yes. gives a shit? Like it, the movie's good. People are going to go see it. Um, and like, because I mean, it, it got success very quickly and then it has had like an incredible tale on it as well. Um, like, and, let me, yeah. let me, can I do the stats on the movie? Yeah, go ahead. It blows me away. So it's grossed over 400 million worldwide. Um, uh, so let's see. It has grossed over us 414 million worldwide, making it the first Japanese film and first anime film to reach 400 million worldwide. It is the first R rated animated film to set multiple box office records, including the highest grossing film of all time in Japan, the highest grossing anime film and Japanese film of all time, the highest grossing animated film of 2020, the fourth highest grossing film of 2020, the seventh highest grossing traditional animated film, the highest grossing horror film of 2020, the 16th highest grossing non English film, the highest grossing R rated animated film of all time and the 34th highest grossing r-rated film worldwide period it's a lot uh spirited away had held that record for a very long time i think your name briefly overtaken and then spirited away got it back there was like some wrangling over like exchange rates and shit um but no uh uh that is a long-standing record that demon slayer just fucking killed yeah. um and and if you think about it like also like it's an anime TV show movie. It's not like the ones that had held this record before were things like Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke and Your Name, movies that are original and not tied to a show. This is a movie from a show that grossed 400. I mean, it's unbelievable, unreal. It also was like in the wake of the pandemic. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. Because also, it's it's not even just a movie from the show. Like, it is the continuation of the story yes. arc from the TV show slash the manga, right? So it's not like most anime movies from TV series, which are generally standalone, vaguely like non-canonical. You know, your One Piece movies, Dragon Ball movies, the Naruto movies. Um, some of them, they might, you know, Naruto has like the last colon Naruto the movie. Um, the best title for any movie ever. Um, that is that is like a continuation of the story, um, but it's not very common. Uh, and here it's just like, because that's also a continuation of the story, quote unquote. That's also not an original story for the movie that is not an adaptation of a manga, that it continues past where the manga ends. Um, this is just where the TV show leaves off is like basically a brief tease of what the movie's going to be about. It's the train. Then Goku's on there. The demon from the end that get the, the show that gets the blood from Muzan is on top of the train. And it's like the movie's coming out next year. And everyone's like, you know, your mind's fucking blown. Um, and especially because the fucking TV show is genius and ends with a training arc. So you are like, so primed to want to see what happens next. Um, yes. and yeah, so, <laughs> but like the, the idea that a movie that is, that you need to have watched at very least 26 episodes of a TV show to like really kind of get the whole thing because it is just a continuation of the story or have read the manga up to that point, And it's not a standalone thing to be able to break that record is fucking crazy. Yeah, and, and, you know, most of that 400 million came from Japan itself. And, like, it needs to be stressed. Like, Japan is doesn't have as many people as the United States. 400 million would be rare for a movie. It is rare for a movie in the United States to make that in the U.S. 
that's like every man, woman, and child in Japan went to see this movie. Like, not literally, but like that's basically what it would have to be like in terms of that and repeat viewings and stuff to make that kind of money. It's big. Yeah, it is. It is incredibly big. I mean, there's so on um, the popularity section of Wikipedia, there's they have this these stats from a poll that I love. According to a 2020 internet poll conducted by Oricon Monitor Research, over 90% of Japanese public is familiar with Kimetsu no Yaiba. 40.5% said that they were very familiar. 57% said that they were familiar with the name, indicating that 97.8% knew of the existence of the series. Um, of the 1,558 respondents who said that they were very familiar, 1,000 said like or very liked um, the series. So yeah, so it is very well known. It's very popular. I mean, any like if you consume any amount of like tertiary Japanese media, like I do, like they podcasts or radio shows or like YouTube streamers and stuff like that, it like you could tell when it happened because it's just like all of a sudden everybody's talking about it. Everyone's making references to it. Um, yeah, it, it, it is like hit a huge, huge degree of popularity. So, so yeah, so big. And I just I just have to add this, Sean, because it's too perfect not to that some journalist went and found Hayao Miyazaki while he was cleaning the river, which Hayao Miyazaki famously he goes to the river by his house every Saturday and he cleans the river and someone went and found him and interviewed him about this. So even Hayao Miyazaki has talked about Demon Slayer. So here it is on how he feels about Demon Slayer closing in on Spirited Away. I don't think that has anything to do with me. As long as the workplace they make is peaceful and they're doing their best, that's all that matters. On if he's watched Demon Slayer. I haven't seen it. I rarely watch. I watch other things. I don't watch TV or movies. I'm a retired old man who picks up trash. On how he feels about fans lamenting Spirited Away losing its spot. I don't care about that. The industry will be inflated these days. Anyway, I need to pick up trash. Anyway, rousing endorsement from Hayao Miyazaki. I love that. Yes, and if he you're gonna do, viewer. yeah, if you're gonna do a Miyazaki quote, I'm gonna do the Tomino quote because because Yoshiki Tomino, uh, the creator of Gundam, was also asked uh, about um, his impression on Kimetsu no Yaiba. Um, he said it had such a dedicated and talented staff. The voice actors are great. The composer of the song that everyone knows is great. So many talented people showed up. In that sense, what I felt surpassed envy, and I started thinking, man, those guys sure are something. Um, and then later in the interview, he has this other quote. Um, I don't think that Demon Slayer is a calculated or contrived work. I think it's assemblage was uh, quite a coincidence. So basically saying that like it was a it was a coincidence of all these really talented people coming together to work on this thing that made it such a huge success. Not like a like him dismissing it as a coincidence. Um, Tomino, uh, much more engaged and conciliatory. That does make sense, given his and Miyazaki's respective personalities. Yes, yeah. That he's like, man, they fucking that's, they they really made a good thing. Um, it's like I wish I could make a thing that's that good. Like that's him saying that, not me saying like I think Tomino right. has made more than got good stuff. Um, but yeah, no. So everyone knows about it. Everybody loves it. But let's talk about a little bit of where it comes from. And, like, why it has that success. Because I think it's just such a fascinating combination of things. Kind of like what Tomino says of, like, it feels like all these different factors came together to create this thing that just exploded in popularity. One of those things is, I think, those shifting business realities of the market in Japan sort of created this cocktail by which something was going to blow it up, right? Something was going to come out that would exploit the ways that people consuming this media had changed and just create a flashpoint just because there hadn't been something that was quite that huge and it was you know you're still being sustained by stuff like one piece that has been around for a while um whereas kimetsu yaiba like flashed um so quickly 
So one thing that's interesting about it is that it is the, like, currently the only, the first and only serialized um, uh, story published by the mangaka Koyoharu Gotoge. Um, so Gotoge-sensei, born in 1989, so like a very young mangaka, a little bit older than us, um, had, like what how manga typically works in Japan, you kind of get some, like, one, if you manage to get, like, published in an editor and stuff, you get one-shots published in magazines that are basically one-off stories, more or less, that sometimes serve as, like, backdoor pilots, more or less, that also kind of, like, test ideas and things like that um which kind of is part of how kimetsu came about but but had a couple of one shots published between 2013 and 2015 um mostly in weekly shonen jump um but but hadn't gotten anything picked up to be serialized yet um and then they uh gotoge sensei along with their publisher sort of decided okay let's like take um some of the ideas from Gotoge Sensei's first published work, Kagari Gari, which has, I haven't read it, but from my understanding, it has like something similar to Kimetsu Yaiba with like demons and like swords and that kind of stuff. Um, let's take that workshop it, try to make something. Um, that's where they came up with uh, Kimetsu Yaiba's kind of prototype, which was a thing called Kisatsu no Nagare, which basically means like the flow of demon killing. Um, and then made a sort of like one chapter thing based on that. Uh, and then the editor looked at that, said, let's take this idea, um, let's lighten it up a little bit, add a little bit more humor, because, um, you know, Kimetsu no Yaiba is like a light horror manga, basically. Um, as you said, Jonathan, it's like, if you categorize it that way, it's like one of the highest grossing horror movies of all time, because it has all these horror elements to it. But let's lighten it up a little bit, make it a little bit more success, like accessible for the Shonen Jump, like main demographic, which is adolescent boys, as you which is what the word shonen means um and then so workshop that into kimetsu no yaiba and then release that uh again in 2016 february 2016 to begin serialization and then it just serialized in weekly shonen jump um up until uh late 2020 where it as it's composed of 23 volumes which is 205 chapters of manga um which is just like such a tight run like, because it, it is, because it's, like, not in, in, in consequence, like, it's small in relative to, like, certainly a One Piece, but it's still a really meaty run of a manga. But during its run, it was, like, reasonably popular, but it wasn't, it didn't explode. It wasn't a Bleach, a Naruto, a One Piece that, like, those series attained, like, a pretty high level of popularity pretty early in the run. This I... was just, like, this really, like putting out a chapter every fucking week and just getting it done and doing it like aiming for what feels like and it feels like experiencing the story even in the anime or the manga form what feels like something that was designed to have a targeted end that it's building to and it did not have narrative elements built into it to expand it beyond the original scope of the premise and it's just like it's just a, to me such like an efficient production on the manga side yeah, absolutely. I have a couple of the issues of Jump that it was in because of when I was in Japan, I picked up a couple. And it is, at that point, it's pretty late in its run and it's near the front of the magazine because if you don't know, the way Jump is organized is um, the chapters for all the different series. There's about 18 series in Jump at any time and they're organized by popularity. So One Piece is also, almost always the first thing in the magazine. And I think one of those issues, Kimetsu, is the first thing um, because it's getting really big. Um, but in one of them it is not it's like three or four so um, you can kind of see that uh, alone just in it probably started near the back of the magazine and then it came up near the front yeah and and just like you know having read the I think is what like the first six volumes of the manga which is what the anime covers it's like that plus like just like 
the very, very beginning. It's like not even the first full chapter. It's like half of the first chapter of Volume 7, which is kind of the like the tease they have at the end of the anime season. Having read that six volumes of the manga, um, I can say like my main impressions of it are... Because Jonathan, did you read any of the manga, like, like a sustained chunk of the manga? So I skimmed through it as I was going to just kind of see what was compared. And there were some moments where I'm like... Like, the big moment in episode 19, I'm like, how is this in the manga that, like, inspired them? And I read that. Um, but no, I have not, like, sat down and, like, read it cover to cover. Yeah, so so my impressions of the manga, and I'll talk about a couple of specific adaptational choices they make. Although the anime is, doesn't take a lot of notable liberties. It moves a couple things around and stuff. It seemed pretty close. Yeah, it's yeah. a pretty close adaptation. Um, but the manga, I think one thing that's interesting is that it it feels like it is a someone's, like first big series that they worked on in the sense of like the art itself um is kind of rough around the edges uh certainly if you're used to i mean you know if you compare it to like toriyama in dragon ball or something like that like toriyama's art style is very simple relatively speaking but it's very very clean um and kimetsu no yaiba feels like particularly in that first volume it's a little bit rough um but i think gotoge sensei has such a clear um, vision of like page layout and paneling um, and that is the thing that makes the um, manga so compelling and I think it highlights for me something that I've always kind of believed but I haven't had a good example of like here's a really good example of this which is that comic books or manga are so much more so much more live and die by that process of the sequential storytelling of how do you put the panels together how do you convey the story through like the contrast uh, and like juxtaposition of images that's way more important than like the like more objective artistic quality of representation within individual panels of a comic book because you can look at mo like many many other manga and the like artistic quality of what is depicted in terms of like the the cleanness of the lines the like detail and things like that if you look at attack on titan you look at dragon ball one piece naruto bleach all of those I would say are much better at that, at least in the early sections of Kimetsu that I've read so far. Um, and and I, one I would put specifically in this camp is My Hero Academia, which I read the first couple of volumes of as a manga back when um, I think season two had finished airing of the anime. And I really liked that season and the first two seasons. And I was like, oh, let me see where this story goes rather than have to wait a year plus for the anime to continue. And I read a couple of volumes of My Hero Academia and kind of fell off of it because the art was technically very competent, but I don't think as a manga, My Hero Academia works nearly as well as the anime does with the like action direction and the voice acting and the music that really elevates some of that material. I think the core storytelling of My Hero Academia is sort of average. I think the anime takes that and elevates it to like kind of a, a higher level of quality. Whereas Kimetsu no Yaiba, I wouldn't say the quality of like individual panels in terms of the artistic depiction is better at any point than like some of the stuff in My Hero Academia. But the way of constructing action, the way of depicting characters, the knowing when to just have a panel that is just Tanjiro's face and just looking at his facial expression and communicating story that way. Like there's an elegance to the storytelling of the manga that I think is really, really effective. Um, and yeah, like I think people should read the manga if you're interested because I think it does. Yeah. It, it, it works really, really well in that original format. It's, it's interesting. So I have not read as much of it as you have, but I think I know what you're talking about. And this is something I think about a lot too. Like this is why to me, Dragon Ball is such a masterpiece is it has Toriyama being a great artist. He is also a master paneler. Yes. Like his paneling is phenomenal in Dragon Ball. And I think people who haven't read it like 
you really should and see where it comes from because that's part of why it is such a gripping and fun manga is he's just really good at that and of course for Toriyama though it's very different because by the time he started Dragon Ball he was a veteran you know practically he'd done all of Dr. Slump which ran for seven years or so like and was a hit so like he'd done he'd put in all his licks right um and you know there's other manga that I know what you mean like one piece is one that has like a fair amount of like controversy is maybe the wrong word but like debate in the fandom of how good Oda is as a paneler because he has very very busy panels they've only gotten busier over time and sometimes it can be a little confusing to read I think sometimes he is brilliant at it I think sometimes this is going to sound so fucking stupid I think one piece should actually be longer than it actually is (laughs) because he packs too much incident into individual like chapters and then the paneling gets kind of wild um but, like, you know, that can go up and down for some people. I know there are some people who are anime only on One Piece because they find the manga too busy. Um, I don't think that personally, but I see why people, some people think that. I think Oda's a brilliant artist, but it's like a, it's a very different kind of style. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, this is, this is that kind of thing. And, and from what I saw on, on Kimetsu, I was actually surprised by how sort of rough around the edges the art was because the anime is, like, so refined. Um, but right away you could, you can tell, I think what you're talking about there. And that is probably something that draws people into it as, as many people have been. Yeah. And I think particularly volume five, which is where all the stuff with Dewey happens, like the, the spider demons, all that is basically what volume five is. Um, and that's where you can see, okay, here's like the bones of these, like what in the anime are these just like jaw dropping action sequences, um, that like, you know, the, the manga, because of what a manga is, right? Those action sequences are much more focused and simple because you, or it would be like 20 pages of just like two exchanges in an action scene or whatever. You need so many images to depict what the anime is able to depict with just moving images and stuff. Um, but like the bones of those action sequences are so strong. And there are a couple of pages that um, have like pretty complex action choreography of the one that really sort of um, I thought was really impressive is the whole exchange where Tanjiro and Inosuke are fighting the father demon who has like the big spider head and Inosuke jumps off of uh, Tanjiro's back. Tanjiro is on his head. He spins and cuts off the demon's leg. Um, and then Inosuke comes up from behind from after jumping up and cuts him in half um, and they defeat him. Like that's basically two pages of the manga and the action is so crisp. It's like they are like masterclass pages on how do you do action scenes without fancy paneling. Like it's very basic paneling. It's not like crazy. And then this bursts out of this panel and the other panel and stuff that like you'll get in more modern comic books or manga. Um, it's like, I think it uses the basics really well. Um, this is the point being the manga is really great. People, people should check it out if you liked the anime. Um, but let's also talk about the anime and where that comes about, because that's the other piece here, right? That's the other piece that makes the success of Kimetsu no Yaiba is you have the manga, you have this really great source material, but it has, but that source material has not managed to sort of break out into the mainstream. You're making an anime version of it. What do you do? Well, I think the main success is in like what really happened here is that they went to UFO Table, the animation studio, to make the show. Um, because UFO Table is, for my money, the best studio working in the anime business. Um, I think it's like one of the best animation production companies in the world. Um, and specifically in terms of digital animation, I think they're more or less unmatched in their ability to merge traditional 2D animation with 3D digital animating techniques. Um, so UFO Table is a really, really fascinating studio. Um, 
one place that they're fascinating is the name of the studio UFO table um, literally is UFO table. So the people who made the studio, which was like a small group of animators who put the studio together in the early 2000s, um, led by an animator named Hikaru Kondo. Um, he was very interested in this, like, I think it was like a European fancy looking table that was vaguely shaped like a UFO. And so when he and his buddies were like, hey, we should make our own anime studio. They're like, well, what should we name it? And then he was like, well, there's this really cool UFO table. And it's like, let's just name it ufo table because ufo is how you pronounce ufo basically in japanese and from my understand they like that studio has since bought that table and so they have a ufo table at ufo table um and i for a very long time i thought that the studio was pronounced ufotable because i thought ufo table that's a ridiculous name for an animation studio and then when i looked up the reason for the name it's like nope it is literally just called ufo table and that is fucking amazing um so yeah, so they started in the early 2000s um, in Ufotable's sort of main philosophy as a studio was to build a studio that did as much in-house as it possibly could. So for people who don't know how animation works, both in Japan and over here, this is true, um, is that the vast majority of actual animation work is outsourced by most studios. So like Nickelodeon did not do much of the animation for Avatar The Last Airbender, right? Almost all that animation was handled by um, a couple of Korean studios. Same thing with like Batman the Animated Series. The like, there were some animators that did some sequences in America. Most of that was outsourced to different production studios overseas. Um, Japan usually doesn't outsource its stuff to foreign studios, um, but it, but the anime industry in Japan is like a network of a lot of different studios and then also a lot of freelancers that do the animation. So typically you would have whatever your studio sunrise is making a show um they have a couple of core staff that they have that they bring in-house um in like some like existing staff that they do some of the animation and stuff with the bulk of in-between animation like sort of like the like stuff that's not the kind of core here's what we're defining our like visual elements of these scenes on but like the extra frames you basically need to create all the movement you need um, those typically are outsourced to either another studio or you just hire a bunch of freelancers that work in Japan that aren't employed by a specific studio, but just work job to job at different studios. Um, and then also things like 3D animation and other digital like CG elements usually will then be outsourced to another studio that specializes in that material. And so that process of outsourcing to different companies and studios and freelancers, it's how the vast majority of animation is made. Yeah. So, like, um, let me just give an example for people with, yeah. like, you'll have, if you look at, like, the credits of something, like, I'm just going to use One Piece because it's easy and it's Toei, you will have um, your, you know, director of that episode, your animation director, you'll have your character designer, and then you'll have, you know, like, your key animators for the episodes. And there are, of course, people on Twitter who break all this down and say, you know, that shot was done by this guy, that was done by this guy. And what they mean by key animation is you do the big movements, like the start of a swing and the end of a swing, and, like, the poses. And then the in-between animation goes elsewhere. And you will often see in Toei animation, like One Piece, when it gets to the... Um, this will be written in English, so you can even tell if you don't read kanji. It'll say, like, Toei Philippines. Yeah. Because um, they have a whole, like, studio that does a lot of their in-betweening in the Philippines. And that is what you'll see in, like, almost every episode of One Piece is some of it will get shipped off to the Philippines. Um, that's, like, a little rare because Toei is, like, a giant fucking factory. Um, but, but yeah, that's that's sort of the, the process. And you'll see it. Like, if you look at credits, you can tell who is, like, the person who works here at this company and is there every day working on the show.
show, and then who are the freelancers who are finishing, you know, Luffy's punch or something. Exactly, yeah. So UFO Table's whole philosophy that they said, let's try to build up a studio where we can do as much of that stuff in-house with our own animation team and our own marketers and our own, like, digital people and background artists and, and uh, composers. Like, the, the one, the, there's a two composers, um, one of which we're revisiting from, uh, from Gundam. Um, but Goshina is an in-house composer um, that works on a bunch of stuff um, for UFO Table, or UFO Table Productions. Um, and... But so, yeah, so that's kind of the germ of the idea that the studio starts with. They also um, start with mostly in-house productions in terms of um, a lot of their early work. Stuff that I haven't seen from the early 2000s is like original material that they made. And they actually had a like manga team that also made like manga based on their own shows for, I think, uh, Coyote Ragtime Show. And it was one of their early things that people like that has that process where they made a manga in-house with Ufotable people at the same time. Um, Ufotable, also Ufotable, I need to stop myself, I need to, I have to incorporate the actual pronunciation of this company now, and not what I thought it was called for years. Just picture the UFO table, Sean. Exactly. Just put a picture up on your computer right now and just look at it. Yes, so Ufotable also had um, something I loved from like the mid-2000s to the late, like early 2010s kind of, um... Uh, they had a claymation team that they don't, I don't think works there anymore because there's not an opportunity to do it much, but they would have claymation segments in some of their shows because UFO, UFO table used to be fucking weird. Um, UFO tables, huge break because you know, they were like reasonably successful there, but they're working on smaller projects. And then they were also then doing outsourced work for other productions. One of the first things they did, Jonathan, um, is that they handled some of the 3d CG animation on Gundam seed and seed destiny. So, so we have actually seen some some UFO table work. Um, obviously, I didn't know that, and again, like they, it was like a relatively small part of that show. But they, that's like sort of how they made their money early on. And then in 2007, um, they started a partnership with uh, Type Moon, which is a company that got very very successful making a thing called Fate Stay Night, the visual novel, um, headed by the writer Kino Konasu, um, who had also done a whole series of visual novels called Kata no Kyokai, or The Garden of Sinners is its official English title. Um, and so uh, Type Moon with Nasu partnered with UFO Table to make an adaptation of that series of novels um, into a series of animated films that started in 2007. The last one came out, I want to say 2011 or 2013 or so. Um, 2013. 2013, I'm looking at it right yeah, now. Yeah, so eight movies. Um, there's a pretty big gap there between the, the uh, like seventh and the eighth movie. Um, and these are fantastic films. Uh, they're set vaguely in the same universe of the Fate Stay Night stuff, but you don't need to have seen any of that to understand it. It's its own characters and stuff. Um, and they are great, great movies. And if you go and watch the first Kata no Kyokai movie, you will see immediately this is where UFO Table became UFO Table because that's where they sort of innovated their approach to integrating 3D and digital animation with 2D animation techniques. Um, so... Part of UFO Table's whole let's do everything we can possibly in-house is not just let's have a great team of 2D animation people that just work here and work on our stuff. Let's also integrate our digital people and 3D people with our 2D people. So that's something where at UFO Table's buildings, I think they have two offices, 
their 2D people and digital 3D people are not separated. They work on the same floor. They work like next to each other, um, which is uncommon. Most anime studios either don't have 3D CG people in-house and that's something that is outsourced or they like work on a different floor and they're separated because they're relatively different professions in many ways. Ufotable integrates all that shit together. So there is like a very, very tight fusion between the digital teams and the CG teams and then the 2D animation teams. And you see that immediately in the Kata no Kyokai series. It kind of defines their approach to action with like very dynamic 3D cameras that take advantage of 3D backgrounds um, to be able to move the camera in 3D and then layer 2D animated elements on top of that so that you still get the look of 2D animation, but you're able to do things that you would not be able to do with a 2D camera unless you had like all the money in the world and like a million people to draw backgrounds to animate basically a 3D camera. Um, and they would pre-vis action sequences using 3D models and motion capturing and then have 2D animators animate over that stuff. You get um, some of that in Kimetsu Yaiba as well. Um, and so they innovate with all the, that kind of production model over the course of the Kata no Kyokai movies. Then in 2010, they get uh, contracted to do, or 2011, Fate Zero, which is that prequel to Fate Stay Night. Um, and that show is fucking incredible. Then in 2014, they do Unlimited Blade Works, uh, which is also incredible. Uh, so that's like where a lot of Ufotable like really made their name was with those Type Moon adaptations. And then in 2016, uh, they made a show based on the Tales series of games called Tales of Zestiria the Cross. And that show is important because it's directed by someone they brought in named Haruo Sotozaki, who then sort of cut his teeth at UFO Table on that show. And then he is the person who then went on in 2019 to direct Kimetsu no Yaiba. And then the movie and is also going to be directing the next season and so on and so forth. So you take UFO Table, which is this sh studio that like, doesn't make a lot of stuff relative to most other anime studios. It's relatively small, but it because of that, it maintains this incredibly high level of quality for its productions. It is has a very distinctive style and like capacity of the studio to do action in a way that almost no other studio can even try. Um, and you, you're seeing a couple of studios, like the studio that makes Jujutsu Kaisen has done this a little bit, Cloverworks, which made a different an adaptation of a Fate spinoff, has like tried to replicate some of Ufotable's um, production model, but nobody has done it as well as they have with merging 2D and digital animation together to achieve something that to me is like an utterly singular aesthetic um, that like I have never seen another studio be able to do. And Kimetsu no Yaiba is fascinating because if you look at this whole list of things, Kimetsu no Yaiba is the first adaptation of a something that was not a video game or a visual novel that they had done since 2004. So that approach of you are not adapting a visual novel where you get to invent the visual style of Fate Stay Night because you just have a handful of static images in that novel. Like it's not a manga that you have like kind of storyboarded almost for you. Um, or a video game that obviously you're making an anime based on a video game. Most of that you're creating your own scenes. Um, Kimetsu no Yaiba, this is the first time that they take that approach and try to apply it to an adaptation of a manga, which has a much clearer visual aesthetic and style pacing and storytelling um, approach from the manga that you need to respect, but then also find a way to put your own stamp on. And I think they, uh, let's just say they did a very good job of that. And that is why you then get this explosion of popularity because the manga or the anime adaptation is so unbelievably fucking good. Everyone sees it. Everyone's like, this is so amazing. I want to see what happens next in the story. Reads the manga, goes and sees the movie, and everyone makes 500 billion yen. Yep. Um, 
so I think this is where we can finally talk about the anime, huh? Yeah. It's really good. It's really fucking good, huh? Yeah. It's really fucking good. Like I said, I watched it uh, for the first time back in 2019, but this is the first time you've watched through it, Jonathan. So what are your overall impressions of the show? It's great. I it's it's about a perfect season of anime. I mean, for these twenty six episodes, like, so I, I am excited to get come back around to all the stuff you're talking about with animation because I have my own notes over here that I want to go through and talk about, and it's it's an incredible feat of animation in all sorts of ways. Um, <clears throat> but it is also, and like more importantly, at like its foundation, it's a great story and yeah. it's great storytelling, and like the the choice of what they decided to tell for these twenty six episodes is perfect. And it is bold, and it is interesting, and it is, like, you you just get to certain points, you're like, oh yeah, this is why this thing is a hit. And then you get to some points, and you really understand it. Um, but it is a just rock-solid 26-episode season that, like, I, I really have trouble imagining the kind of person who is even vaguely interested in anime who could watch this and not be moved to want to watch more, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it just feels like this is one of those things that, like... Like a Cowboy Bebop or something. Like, I don't know. Like, one of those shows that just, like, if you like anime, you're going to like this thing. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, and, and I think this is absolutely in that category. It's very accessible. It's, it's uh, you know, a great first Shonen series or a great 50th Shonen series. It's just, like, it's got those bones. It, you know, I do not think as a story it, like, reinvents the wheel in a bunch of big ways. But I think it has, like, you'll recognize a lot of the beats. I have made the comparison on Twitter, and I will describe it here later more, that, like, in its bones, the skeleton of this thing is essentially Full Metal Alchemist. But, like, I think there are little things it does, specifically in characterization and its approach between, like, the hero and the villains, that is what really makes this a special work. And it's something UFO Table gets really well in their adaptation. Um, and uh, it's it's beautiful. And I think, we haven't talked about this yet, but also the voice acting is mm-hmm. out of this world good in this show. I think it is like, there are, not just a, the three like main Demon Slayer boys yes. of Tanjiro, Inosuke, and... Um, Zenitsu. Zen, Zenitsu. All three of those characters are characters that I think would not work in an anime if you did not have the exact people playing them that they have playing them. Yeah. You know what I mean, Sean? Yes. Like, these are difficult parts. Tanjiro talks throughout, like, half the show because of all his inner monologue. Zenitsu, you have that performance one degree off and he would be in-fucking-sufferable. You know, Inosuke, if you have that performance one degree off... I think the character would just bounce off a wall. And, like, I haven't heard the dub much, but I, like, I've heard Tanjiro in the dub, and he's just a generic boy, and I feel like that would be a very boring show to listen to. Um, And it's just, like, that side of it's amazing. The music side's amazing. It is just, wherever you sort of poke this thing, it is really well done. I have a couple of minor things I would say are criticisms, but, like, it's amazing how few of those there are. It is a really rock-solid show. Um, perfectly paced. Like, this was something I was uh, fascinated to see, is that it's not actually that fast-paced in comparison to the manga. It's mm-hmm. They only do six volumes for this first season. It's pretty much exactly two chapters an episode. You have anime that go much faster than that. You have some that go much slower than that. This is a very much like a Goldilocks. They found the right in the middle like style, I think. Um, it's great. It also has a theme song that I am convinced was designed by scientists in a lab to be the perfect anime theme song. Like, I am convinced there are some, like, Nobel Prize-winning Japanese scientists 
who were like kept in a lab for years on end analyzing every anime theme song in history and figuring out like note by note second by second what do you need to create the perfect anime theme song and i think grenge by lisa is that song and it is wild to me that every time i watch it when the beat drops i physically raise my hands in the air and then go down because yeah. it's perfect um yeah, so so there's a lot of different avenues by which this is a great show, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and and I think you, it's like you know, as we always do on our anime based podcast, we just like defer to Tomino because he's right, right? It is like part of like what it is. It's just like it's this all these groups of different talented people coming together, um, working on this this show, um, including obviously Gotogo Sensei making the the manga and like the like the foundation of everything. Um, that creates this because yes, it has some of the best voice acting of any show. It's like some of the best casting. Um, it is just like perfectly cast. Um, it, yeah, especially like reading the manga. Um, I don't think there is any character that is more perfectly cast than Shinobu, um, the butterfly lady, lady as uh, Jaime <laughs> Saudi. It is just like you look at that character in the manga. It's like there is no way you could have ever put anyone else in this role. Um, and that's true of most of the characters. That is like the one for me that's the zenith of like, nobody else could play this character. It is such a, and that's true of so many characters. It's like, it's such a fine balance between like, it would be a little bit too dark or a little bit too silly. Um, you wouldn't quite buy it. And it's like, so many of the characters exist right on that edge. Or like with Zenitsu, like you said, it's like a little bit too much and he would just be too annoying and the character wouldn't work. But if he's not annoying enough, the character doesn't work in the other direction because the character's kind of supposed to be grating which then makes when he does something that's heroic, it's satisfying. It's like the concept of the character. So it's like all that stuff, it's such a tricky balance. Um, and yeah, I just think every at every avenue, the anime makes all the right choices. Where it decides to stick incredibly faithfully to the manga is perfect. Where it decides to make small adjustments or add a little thing here or move a line here or there, um, particularly it starts doing that more once you get to the spider clan area. Um, like all those little changes they make are like perfect for how you'd adapt it to a manga or to an anime. Um, and yeah, at its core, like you said, Jonathan, it is not revolutionizing the shonen genre. Um, but it is, it is finding like its niche that it occupies so effectively making a couple of choices of one, not being designed to be protracted, right? It doesn't give itself room to be an unending story. It has a very clear like narrative arc that it feels like it's aiming for. Um, and so it's not giving itself room to like, oh, once we defeat the Juni Kizuki, now there's like a second secret double evil group of demons, right? Which is something <laughs> that like these kinds of shows do all the time to like keep on. I feel like Naruto does that like three times because it's like, oh shit, we're not quite ready to do the finish the Sasuke stuff. Fuck, we got to do, we got to come up with another one. That's like the weakest part of Naruto is that kind of like ending section where it kind of can't figure out how to collapse everything together. Here it's like this efficient version of one of these stories. You know, Tanjiro starts out, um, I mean, well, after like the first few episodes, he is a very proficient at demon slaying instead of having, here's the whole first season of the show where he kind of sucks, which is sort of what most I, of these shows do. You know, what was funny to me is I was totally thinking about that. Like uh, Naruto, I'm not super familiar with, but I've seen the early section of Naruto and like, I feel like this show goes through the throw all the kids in a forest and have them fight together in like, they're done with that by episode four. Yeah. That's like the first 50 episodes of yes. Naruto, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like that whole arc where they're in the forest training in Naruto, that's like 40 episodes in, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. I feel like they just, I that's something I love. They blow through the like, 
the like this is something Full Metal Alchemist also does, which is part of my comparison of just like the throat clearing section of this. They just get rid of and then they move on, and it's great. Yeah, and so yeah, exactly. It is just this very efficient version of that story that doesn't kind of deal with all the bullshit. Um, and then I think it to me like the key of the series really comes down to Tanjiro as your protagonist. I think he is the thing that feels revolutionary is way too strong of a word, but he's like the most distinctive singular part of it as a shonen production is you can think of some characters that are shown protagonists that are similar to Tanjiro in a couple of ways, but he feels like such a wholly original creation to be the center of one of these kinds of series. He's so thoroughly defined by his compassion um, while also being not a saintly type character, right? He also gets incredibly angry. It's not, he's not this like one note sort of, I forgive everybody kind of thing. He's going to go out there and cut off some fucking heads, but just because he's going to kill them doesn't mean he has to kill them out of spite. And it's like that quality of the main character um, that is such a key focus um, and the like makes this character you just want to see succeed and you want to follow him on his journey because he's so earnest. Um, it's that one thing there's like playing Yakuza 7 right now. Like he has a lot of similarities to me with Ichiban. He's like a much smarter Ichiban, but he's got that That's a good way to put similar it. heart to him that is so infectious. Um, and it's the kind of thing where like, I can think of stuff like, like Naruto has a similar sort of character once he's gone through a big character arc, but he has to go through a big character arc to kind of get to the place where Tanjiro is. And there's something about starting with this character that he's like, he's got a good fucking head on his shoulders. He's just a good dude trying to figure out what to do. Um, and you just really want to follow him. And then I think he's just a really good sort of vector by which to get these themes about like family and caring and compassion and empathy that are common themes in the genre, right? Like the the root of what shonen is as a genre is that like friends are important and hard work are important. Like those are the two things you need to save the world is work really <laughs> fucking hard and like stick by your friends no matter what. And, and this show is not different. Um, it is very much about those same things, but I think it like takes that dynamic more seriously than most of these shows do. That's so thoughtful about what family means to Tanjiro. And it's so thoughtful, I think also about like, the mindset one needs to have to have the like training regimen into sort of have that amount of dedication that Tanjiro has. It's not just a thing you kind of throw off and he can do. It's something that he has to really incorporate as himself as a human being. And so I think that th those elements to me is like really kind of the secret sauce um, is that it all comes down to Tanjiro as your protagonist. Um, and I think he is like the thing that makes the show fully tick. A hundred percent. And here's the thing. I think you can say that about any great shonen show. Yes. Like, I did a little thread on this, and this is one of my points I made, was that, like, uh, over on Twitter I did this thread, that I think the thing that when you look at shonen shows, there are a million of them, but when you look at the ones that, like, break out and are big and enduring, I think you can usually trace what is special about that show to something in the protagonist, right? Mm -hmm. And it's something that is slightly unique. And a lot of shonen protagonists are all, they have similarities, but, you know, like like Goku in Dragon Ball brings something very special to the table that while there are many Goku imitators, there is no one quite like Goku. Uh, you know, Luffy, I think at the beginning, a lot of people thought was a Goku imitator, and he's really not the yeah. deeper you get into One Piece. And Luffy is, like, very unique and marked by, um, like, a lot of, like, and the, the way One Piece is, is marked by some, some sadness and some, like, 
um, a meaning of and like a desire for friendship that is much more uniquely defined than it is in a lot of shows. Uh, you know, Naruto, like, again, from the outside looking in, my sense is that a lot of what people love in there is just the fucking arc that, like, they start with Naruto as annoying as shit and he becomes Naruto Uzumaki, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's He is a character who's, like, so defined by his trauma and his sense of inadequacy because of how he's been treated since he was a kid. Like, coming yeah. to grow past that insecurity... Um, and then ending the show as the Hokage that he always declared he would be. Right. And Tanjiro, I think, is defined by his compassion, as you say. But I also think that compassion makes him one of the most unique of all these protagonists, because one thing I tie pretty much every shonen protagonist together with is that they're fucking hot-headed, mm -hmm. right? Like, all of them. Like, Goku probably the least, because he's dumb. <laughs> but, like, he is still hot. Like, Goku is still a hothead, right? He will go off to fight things. Um... But, like, because, like, the shonen protagonist I think is most similar to Tanjiro is probably Ed from Full Metal Alchemist. But Ed is also a hothead who does stupid shit that Tanjiro would never do. And that's not to say Tanjiro doesn't make mistakes or get angry, but he is very not hotheaded. Like, Tanjiro is very analytical and he is very compassionate and he is almost always thinking about, like, how do we actually get through this? Not just how do I work out my personal feelings in this moment, which is something usually shonen protagonists have to get past, right? Uh, fucking Domon in Mobile Fighter G Gundam yes. has that exact arc of he's a hothead, and at the end he has to learn how to not do that to be a hero, you know? And that is something Tanjiro, how he has to learn to be a hero is a very different thing, and that's something I really love. Um, and it's, it's yeah, it's just he, he, he instantly goes into the annals of like shonen heroes who will be around forever because he has something unique that makes you want to follow him. Um, and then the fucking vocal performance by... Um, Hanai Natsuki. Uh, Hanai, yeah. Um, amazing, amazing. And I take it he's a pretty, like, not up-and-comer, but he's young and, and you know, um, he's only 29 and, and sounds younger. Um, but this is, what a fucking, like, titanically great performance. Um, oh my god, he's the voice of Jocko the Galactic Patrolman? Yes, he is. Yeah. I didn't know that. I love Jocko. I would not have recognized that. Oh my god, okay, this dude has range. Anyway, um, yeah, it's it's such a good performance. It is such a... It's like it's not, it's not a typical shonen performance. It's like gentleness and like... He, doesn't, he does his screams when he has to, but it's not like the big part of the performance. It is so special. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, talking about Hanai Natsuki, I mean, he's he's a, a really great voice actor. Like, I think the big thing that he, like, got big with was he played the main character in Tokyo Ghoul. Um, and then he's also the main character in Your Lie in April or Shigatsu Akimi no Uso. There's, like, the two big things that he was in, like, relatively early in his career. I mean, although, he, you know, he's he's one year older than us, which is like whenever yeah. I see that, like, oh, born in 1991, it makes me feel inadequate. So it's like, I haven't yeah. been, <laughs> I haven't voiced the protagonist in the hey, most successful Hey, has he done 372 anime. episodes of a variably successful podcast? No, no. but um, <laughs> let me bring up something. So this is like the other thing that Hanai Natsuki is famous for is that he's not only Jonathan, uh, like now, like the hottest shit in Japan in terms of a voice actor. He also uh, has a video game YouTube channel in Japan that has 1.97 million subscribers. Um, well, he is better than us, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's been no going for a that. couple of years. Um, and I just want to shout that out because it is one of my favorite YouTube channels I follow. And some of his most popular videos have been subbed in English by fans, so you can watch those. Um, and in particular, Jonathan, I think you would particularly like a series of videos he's done with some of his other voice actor friends, uh, Ono Kensho and Eguchi Takia, where they play different like physical either card or board games 
but the whole time and again these are like some of the most popular young male voice actors in japan so it's like they take a certain level of like skill to this approach they are sort of play acting as if it was a Yu-Gi-Oh shadow duel so like if oh you if you lose you die <laughs> the first one they did was of uno and i think it's still the best one and it is one of the funniest <laughs> videos on the internet because here's three professional voice actors in japan hamming it the fuck up like doing this sort of like improvised playing uno but if you lose you die and they're all basically playing like the asshole villain type character it's they're great fucking videos um i am googling this right now so i can fucking uh uh bookmark the shit out of that yeah it's that very good uh youtube channel and i think it's too like his credit as an actor is i've been like actively watching basically every video they put up they put like a video up every two or three days um for over a year at this point because i started watching around the beginning of the pandemic because I think that he started doing like Animal Crossing videos that got really big, and they one of them ended up in my like recommendations on YouTube. Um, and I was like, wait, is this is the dude who's fucking Tandro and Kimetsu no Yaiba? That's crazy. Um, and started watching the videos, and they're very good. They're very funny. He's got a crew of like other like YouTube video game people from Japan that he plays with. Um, but I've been watching those videos for like a year. Like I have heard way more Hanai Natsuki as himself in those videos than I have him playing characters in an anime. And yet, when I started watching Kimetsu no Yaiba a couple of weeks ago, like, that, it never even occurred to me. Like, it never even was in my head that's like, oh, this is this guy I've been listening to in these videos forever now. Um, and I think one thing that's remarkable is Hanai Natsuki, like, I've seen a bunch of his major roles. He never really changes his voice that much. He doesn't, like, create a voice for characters as much as, like, he sort of uses more or less his natural voice. And he sort of talked about this in interviews, that that's kind of part of his approach because he feels like that's where he can find his full range as an actor. Um, and it's, like, I think it's incredibly impressive that he just sounds like himself when he plays Tanjiro. Like, he doesn't sound like a different person. But the, like, characterization and personality he so fully embodies that I never, it never occurs to me to even think about that I've watched this whole, like, hours and hours and hours of videos of him playing video games on YouTube. Um, that, yes, I think it is, like, one of the most impressive performances in one of these kinds of shows. Um, he has this incredible range. The comedy is super strong. The action, when he has to be super intense, there are a couple of lines that Tanjiro has um, that I think are these, like, intense lines um, that he just nails so hard that when you read them in the manga, it's just, like, you can recall his entire delivery um, because it's like he just lands the line so strong. Um, but then also there's like the kind of big brother moments that are like the root of what Tanjiro is. That's like he finds that sweet spot so perfectly. So, yes, I think it's like a like legendary performance. It's so I mean, it's it's far from being done, right? Yeah. Like we have probably not even heard the I haven't read the whole manga. You haven't read the whole manga. I would imagine the best is yet to come. That's my impression. I th my impression is that um, the movie is not just one of the highest grossing movies in Japan because the show is unpopular. I think it's a really good fucking movie, probably, because like, yeah, the vague sense I get is like, that's where some of like the story. There's some like really good story stuff I think happens in that movie. I'm very excited for it. Yeah, so oh. and we've probably got at least two or three more seasons. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's it's a phenomenal performance, and it's the it's the kind of thing that it's not just he every lead actor grounds a show they have to right, um, but like I think it is the specific way he's able to walk across the different tones. He never gets as silly as like Zenitsu and Inosuke and that kind of stuff, um, but he has his his funny moments. But it's just there's some really heavy stuff in this show he has to do, and there's also just like a lot of 
this show leans on internal monologue really heavily. Even if you've seen other anime that have a lot of internal monologue, it's a very common thing. This one has probably more of it than most yeah. um, during the battles. And that is the kind of thing that I generally don't love. Um, and yet he does it. I think it's because he's the one doing it. He And he walks you through. And sometimes I do think the show is like a little overwritten in how much they have Tanjiro like talking and explaining things while he's swinging his sword in slow motion. And yet I think he is so good at like projecting desperation in those moments or emotion or something where it's not just he's telling the audience things that they will need to know so that the next action beat makes sense, which in a very utilitarian sense is why that's there, but he's turning it into a character moment. And he does that very consistently. And there's a moment in the whole little, um, the like haunted mansion part in the middle of the show where one of those little monologues that starts expository turns into like his defining character moment of the season. Mm -hmm. And the way he makes that turn and just brings you to the edge of your seat even though nothing actually happens in that moment it's just him getting ready to do something and then the next episode he does it uh is unbelievable um and he just has moments like that across the show um and yeah it is a it's a really phenomenal performance and it's one where just again and again i kept thinking like man this this not that there's like something bad at the core of this i'm not saying that but like this is a hard role and if you didn't have someone doing it this well this show just fundamentally would have problems you know what i mean yeah absolutely yeah because like with tandra one of the dynamics with the character is that like he's smart right like and it's he's not like inhumanly smart he's not a genius character but it's like he's just got a good fucking head on his shoulders right he's he's Mm -hmm. he can be calm and assess things calmly um, and and you get that insight through the internal narration, but as you say, it is something that could become cloying. Um, but he like makes sure it's always grounded in what is the character feeling, why is the character like thinking this way, and it kind of um, I, I find those moments very infectious where he's like trying to sort of break down what the enemy is doing, and part of that is also like it. it gives you these like scenarios of him thinking like okay if i do this no if i do that i'll probably die okay instead let me try this um and you get like his whole logic and what he's doing as he's fighting particularly for the first half of the show because that's before you have your kind of full cast assembled and it leans on him super hard um but even then like i think yeah he finds that sweet spot in the characterization to always make sure that that narration is motivated by something that the character is thinking and feeling and I like that, you know, he's a character marked by trauma, but not defined by it, mm-hmm. which I also feel like is kind of a unique space for a character like this. Um, and he's really good at projecting that, too, where there's a lot of sadness in his life, obviously. Episode one, bad things happen to Tanjiro and his family. But, like, he is someone who's so fundamentally, like, forward-looking and is about, like, well, what do I have and what do I need to protect and, like, keep? And what do we go forward with? Um, that, you know, it, it does not wind up sort of bogging him down in a way that I feel like, and this is just good storytelling. Yeah. It really easily could, right? Um, you could really easily do the version of this where he is flashing back to his dead family every episode. And we've all probably seen that anime and, you know, or TV show. And it's just, I mean, Jonathan, we're a doing a whole slog. series of podcasts on Batman movies. So it's like, yes, yeah, we've yeah, been, we yeah. have been doing a lot of, here's like my dead parents yeah. and everything I do in my life is connected to my dead parents. And isn't that this? And that's the special thing about Kimetsu no Yaiba, right? Yeah. Is that it starts with this horrific trauma of his entire family being gruesomely murdered, and instead of him being mired in that moment, what happens is he finds one of them is alive, and he's going to devote everything to protecting and saving that one person and bringing their humanity back. And that's different. That's different than like a Batman approach, right? Yeah. That is a that is not Batman going like, and now in honor of my parents, I'm going to make something great out of my life. 
it's different. And I think that's like that's the key. And this is also a, a connection to Full Metal Alchemist that I've made. Blah blah blah. But like it is a that is the key like engine of the story um, is fighting for what's still there. Uh, and so it becomes a very present tense story when it could become a very past tense story. Yeah, and, and one other thing there with the characterization of Tanjiro and trauma in the show is one thing I appreciate is that, like, Tanjiro never uses his trauma as, like, an excuse or, like, a cudgel to use on other characters, right? He never, like, directs it at other people. Um, and that's, like, some of the stuff that's, like, most heartbreaking. As, like, one of my favorite scenes from that first half of the show is um, after he defeats the demon that can, like, melt into the ground and has, like, splits himself into three pieces that's um, killed a bunch of girls in this town the guy who's left there whose fiance has been killed um tundra goes over and he's like i know you must be suffering really hard but you have no choice like you have to live and you have to move forward you have to be able to move on and the kid lashes out at tundra and says like what the fuck would you know you know like you're just a little kid like how would you understand like the pain i felt um and then tundra just gives him a look he doesn't even say anything he just gives them this one like sort of look and that's where like that is it's such a good panel in the manga um, that the anime just sort of like replicates as closely as possible to just get this expression from him. And then Tanjiro walks away and the, and the guy realizes, oh, like here's this part, like, here's like this like teenager basically walking around fighting demons with a girl that's also a demon in like a box. Like clearly he has had some shit in his life. Um, and he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then Tanjiro just turns around and says, it's fine. And like, bye. And like waves his hand. And this is a beat that is not in the manga that I was so surprised by, but is added in the anime. I think it's it like highlights how good UFO table is, um, is in the anime. They add an extra beat there where you zoom in on Tanjiro's hands and you see how calloused his hands are, which is something the manga remarks on in the training piece with Urokodaki-san, but doesn't put it here. And that's where the guy fully realizes like those hands are not the hands of like a child, right? They're like bruised and cut and calloused and fucked up. And to me, the like Tanjiro's hands, which the anime continues to have that detail whenever it's like clear and Tanjiro's like palms are clear in a frame, they're always more highly detailed than you'd usually have to like get that sense of he has worked so hard to be able to be the person that he is right now. And that being communicated symbolically through his hands, I think is like really potent. Um, something that I think the anime is smart to sort of lean on even more than the manga does and just to find so much of the character to me in his approach of he doesn't use like how hard he's worked and how bad it's been for him as a way to like hurt other people but a way to allow him to be empathetic for other people absolutely yeah I agree with all of that and the, the motif of the hands is something that's one of my favorite parts of this show and that they keep bringing it back and remembering that visual detail is something that I find very very special in this show um, absolutely. So how do you want to continue this conversation? We wound up talking about Tanjiro. Do you want to just wind up going through the relatively small main cast of season one? Yeah, let's talk about some of our other characters. So let's talk about our, our co-star, um, Nezuko, voiced by uh, the voice actress Akari Kito, who you might know as, if you've been playing Genshin Impact, as Barbara in the Japanese version of Genshin Impact. Uh -huh. She's uh, you, you might not be able to notice because, Nezuko, uh, because she has like five lines across the season. <laughs> yes, she has five lines across the season, except for she also has like the second uh, like largest speaking part in the entire show because she is in almost every episode outside of a couple where she's sleeping. It's just most of her dialogue is mm, and ah, which is not to yes. which is like to say that like <laughs> in many ways she has like the hardest fucking role in the show because she has to communicate the entire character with growls basically. 
Um, and yet I do think that Nezuko is like a really, really well-drawn character within the reality of the show, even with all those limitations in terms of like, you are so, you have very little access into her like internal perspective outside of a couple of key moments. And yet like Nezuko feels like such a present character in the show that like, I never like sort of bat an eye at the fact that like Akarikito is always there on the stage like if you like see interviews and stuff with the full cast like she's always given like primacy along with Hanai Natsuki and I think that's fully appropriate because it's like the character is the other key of the show and it is like I have to imagine as a voice actor it's pretty fucking hard to play a character like that oh it must be hard I would also for this one give um equal credit to the animators yes. in in figuring out how to characterize her visually because that's primarily her presence in the show, right? Yeah. Um, but Nezuka, man, it's a, it's an extraordinary gambit here because, so when I've been making my comparisons to Full Metal Alchemist, the basic thing I mean there is that if you know Full Metal Alchemist, the, the plot of that is that Edward, Al, Al, Edward and Alphonse Elric lose their mom. They've, they've lost their whole lives. He's, Ed is an alchemy genius, so he tries to do this human transmutation. It all gets fucked up and Al loses his body and Ed loses his arm and leg and then he has to get Al's body back. Um, and so then he goes and joins the group of genius alchemists and travels around the world trying to figure out the cure for Al and figuring all of that out. Roughly analogous to all the steps in Demon Slayer there. The big difference is that Full Metal Alchemist becomes a two-hander where Al is still a character who's like active and talking and ambulant and all of that stuff, right? Whereas for this, Tanjiro is very clearly like number one on the call sheet and then Nezuko is someone who like becomes characterized in much more subtle ways and is sometimes just in a box for episodes at a time. Um, and it's amazing how strong a character Nezuko becomes despite that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Not despite that, like because of that in a lot of ways. Like the tragedy of this is something that becomes actualized, but it also becomes she is not like, okay, so when, when the show first started, I'm watching the first couple episodes and like, okay, she's a demon. He puts bamboo in her mouth. He's got her in a box. And at first I was a little like, is this going to work? Like this could... That could get really cringy really fast if you did it wrong. If the mm -hmm. plot is the brave heroic boy brings his sister around in a box and has to save her a bunch, right? And they very quickly make the decision. Or I shouldn't even say they make the decision. I'm sure this was Gotoge's plan from you know starting the yeah. manga. That that's not what Nezuko is going to be. She's actually going to be a character with a lot of agency. It's just not agency that she is able to verbalize necessarily. Um, and so she is someone who has like clear wants and desires and preferences and powers and she saves Tanjiro as much as he saves her if not more like because she's very powerful in her own demonic way um and clearly that's something they're building up for later in the show um and that's really special and it's something that really makes this story feel unique um even as there are clear like um you know antecedents and, and precedents for this kind of thing right um and so, yeah, Nezuko's an amazing character and a, an unbelievably striking character design of this yes. little girl with giant striking eyes and a stick of bamboo in her mouth who uh, is able to, like, growl and look at you and, and it feels like her eyes could kill you. Yes, and she can change size and, and it's, like, the yes. most adorable thing in the world. Um, like, little, little tiny kid Nezuko. God, the part um, near the end of the spider arc where uh, uh, Kano is like chasing her through the woods and swipes at Nezuko and Nezuko shrinks into a little kid and is like running yes. away as a little kid. It is like the most <laughs> adorable thing you've ever seen in, in anything ever. Um, yeah, but yeah, but I think like for me with Nezuko, one thing that's like really like one thing that's really effective about the character is like the way that they try to navigate 
like how does she perceive the world and like how much like sort of internal reality does she have um and you have that really really powerful moment at the end of the tamayo arc where um tamayo asks tandra why did nezuko like help us like she was like trained to or like hypnotized by uriko dakisan to protect humans and fight demons so why is she protecting us and tandra looks at her and says well she must have just decided that you're a human um and that's where tandra explains that you know he at first and i think this was like really important to have the protagonist express this that like he was uncomfortable with the idea of having nezuko be hypnotized for the whole show which i think is like appropriately uncomfortable and nezuko's like eyes are specifically drawn in a foggy way after she's hypnotized to like where you're like have a hard time understanding exactly what she's thinking or feeling at times because she almost looks drunk in a way um because it's the same time you would visualize someone being drunk or drugged kind of um but then they're like it being drawn clear in the line that's like yes like she clearly has like kind of like a foggy perception of the world in some ways because of what uriko daki did but she can but she is expressing her own will that it's not really humans demons it's what who she sees as being worth protecting and who she sees as being worth fighting is actually where she draws the distinctions and that is an expression of who she is and what she chooses for herself um, and then having Tamayo cry and then Nezuko go over and pat their heads. Um, it's a really, really important scene, I think, to like grounding that characterization to where you're not being alienated by the character because you can see how she's expressing herself in the world. Yeah, it's a it's a big narrative gambit, but it is one that pays off in spades. Yes. And then, of course, you get and we'll obviously talk about all this super in depth with the end of episode 19. But the fact that she has no speaking lines of like dialogue outside of episode one before she's turned until you get her being able to say Kekijutsu exploding blood. Um, and that's like the, like you get some like words that she gets to say again and like make it clear. That's like, Oh, she's, she has an internal monologue in the way that Tanjiro does. And this is like the first window into that you get is her expressing that um, power. It's incredible. And because I think you've heard the voice actress, they've let her be a presence in all the like, mm's and like, like little grunts that you know that voice, yes. even though you haven't heard her say words in so long that you don't remember what it sounds like when it says words, but you just go like, oh yeah, that is Nezuko. They didn't like cast someone for this episode, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely pays off. All right, who next? Let's, let's talk about uh, our, uh, one of our other sword boys, Zenitsu. Agatsuma Zenitsu, played by... Uh, Shima no Hiro, another, like, and all the actors on the show are incredibly good. Uh, he's incredibly good as well. He's been in a bunch of stuff. He's one of the, he's not, like, one of the main, main characters, but he's a really major supporting character in Attack on Titan. I think it's the first thing I saw him in. Um, he's got, like, that, like, really good boyish voice that he plays a lot of, like, young, like, kind of shonen type main characters or supporting characters. And he actually... Oh, he's Rex in uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 2. That's yes. cool. Um, yes, yeah, the Japanese dub of that. Um which I realize I remembered because he is in the trailer for that game, which I saw the Japanese version of. If, yes. if you're a fan of My Hero Academia, I think like the show that you would, or the role you would never be able to identify as him if you didn't look it up, is he plays a character named Dobby, who's the villain in My Hero Academia who like shoots fire at people. Um, and like, it is the most non Shimono Hiro role I have ever seen. Like you would never guess that casting, um, but he fucking knocks it out of the park. So he's got really good range. But Zenitsu is more like, I think kind of in his bread and butter of the kind of like major supporting character, or I mean, really he's a main character, but um, that is like the, a buddy of the main character. That's just a little bit on the annoying side. Like that's kind of 
the uh, kind of wheelhouse that a lot of his major roles are. Um, but this is where I think you take the, like, a little bit on the annoying side and you go, it's like, no, we got to turn that up. Like, we have to make him kind of repulsive in some ways because Zenitsu is, like, the most realistically, cow like, cowardly character I've seen in the genre ever. Like, you have coward-type characters sometimes, but there's something about his, like... You, I, you, I sometimes find myself not being able to disagree with his assessment of, like, I don't want to fucking go on that mountain. I'm going to get fucking <laughs> killed. Like, no. Like, no. I don't want to go fight demons. Are you kidding? Because he doesn't have... You know, his family wasn't killed by demons. He wasn't raised on a mountain and doesn't know anything better. He's a poor sap who got tricked by some lady into debt. Um, and and this old man played the Shigeru Chiba shows up and saves him from debt and trains him to be a swordsman. And he likes the old man and wants to do good by that old man. But that's his only relationship to this thing. So his like insistence of like, fuck this shit, man. I don't want to do any of this. It's like, I can really sympathize. I love when you meet him, especially the second time yeah. when they come across on the road, like on the farming road. And his whole thing is he is an anime character who doesn't want to be in the anime. Yeah. He's like, let me out. I want to be a villager married to this chick over in this town that maybe Tanjiro will go past and say hi to. And that's it. I don't want to be in the anime. Um, what I thought of all the time was Zenitsu. Well, one of my favorite YouTubers is this guy, ProZD. Mm -hmm. um, who does a lot of like funny skits and stuff, and he has a skit that is about um, an annoying anime character, and it's 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 the in the skit he and a friend are watching the anime, and and there's a character on screen who's like, I'm so scared, I don't want to do this, I'm gonna pee my pants, I'm so scared, and 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 Prozidi's friend is like. Uh, this is annoying. What the fuck? Why do I want to watch it? And he's like, just just watch. It gets, trust me, he gets good. He gets great. And then they like flash forward where he's like, I'm not the man you knew before. I am reliable now. And then mm -hmm. it goes back and he's like, now I'm pooping my pants. I'm so scared. And it's, it's a perfect sketch. You should go watch it instead of listening to me trying to recap the sketch. But what I love is that Zenitsu is even sillier than the character in that yes. fucking sketch. Like they dial it up to 11 and then they keep dialing and keep dialing. And it could be the most annoying thing in the fucking world if Hiroshimono was not so goddamn funny. Like, it is such a great comic performance when he is dialing up the, the comedy. I am just cackling with laughter at some of his, like, cowardice stuff. It is so great. Um, and, of course, then you do do the thing that anime always are going to do where he's a coward and then you find out he's incredibly, like, cool and reliable, right? Yes. Um, you know, like, the one I think a lot of people will know is, like, Usopp in One Piece is this this thing of Usopp's the coward who is really, like, one of the most loyal and reliable members of the crew and all of that sort of thing, right? And they have lots of fun with that with Usopp and Kape Yamaguchi is, you know, the, the patron saint of that kind of character mm -hmm. in some sense. Um and and but I think like what they do with it here of just like you've seen this character so many times let's do the absolute nth degree silliest but also as you say Sean kind of most realistic version of it of someone who's just like utterly paralyzed by fear let's have Hiroshimono go to fucking town on it like he's on stage doing like manzai comedy it's so good um and then when it's time for the Zenitsu episode where you do his flash, like there's basically one episode, it's like 17 or 18, that's all him fighting that spider as the poison is going through him. It just knocks you absolutely flat. What a great like other side of this character we have. And then I think the way the closing training arc kind of starts to reconcile those, uh, man, he's fucking great. I love Zenitsu. Yeah, it's, it's just a... Yeah, it, it is that character that it would be so easy to get so wrong, um, but they... 
yeah, they find that right approach. I think one thing that makes it work is also the like light horror elements of the series, I think helps make it like more believable that this character is just like, I just know, like, fuck this, like, fuck this shit completely. <laughs> right. Because it's like, cause most of these series, you, you, you know, you're like fighting other people, you're fighting ninjas or like martial artists or pirates or whatever. It's like here you're fighting demons, but really you're fighting vampire monsters Um, is like basically what the Oni are. And so having that, like, I mean, there's a certain level of like gore and violence in both the anime and the manga, um, like it's some of the artistic elements of it are in terms of like the manga because style are clearly pulled from like manga horror manga. Um, like there's like a clear roots I think in some like of Junji Ito's art style that you can see. I was about there. to say that I was gonna say Junji Ito feels like a huge flag point for this. Yeah, that like it's obviously it doesn't go. It's not a full horror manga. It doesn't go like super super far with that stuff. But it has just enough of that stuff, especially when you get into the spider section. It kind of reminds you of like, oh right, this can be kind of fucked up. Um, like what happens to Zenitsu there is like one of the most fucked up things I've seen happen to a fictional character of getting poisoned and slowly turned into a fucking spider and his hair's falling out and his limbs are shrinking and stuff. And so having the things they're fighting being so horrific, I think helps you see that side of Zenitsu where you're kind of with them. You're kind of like, I like, like, no, like these things are dangerous. These things are frightening. Like, yeah, I would not want to fight these fucking things either. Um, but then, you know, when you come, when you, there's like fewer more like stand up and applaud moments than um, at the end of the manor arc where Tanjiro's defeated the uh, drum demon and he comes out of the front door of the manor and he sees Zenitsu protecting Nezuko's box from Inosuke as Inosuke's oh, kicking so the shit out of him. Um, especially because the anime does the same way the manga does where you don't see any of the progress up to that. That becomes a flashback at the beginning of the next thing. Um, and so, yeah, like that moment where you see that he has been paying attention. He is a good guy. He does care. He just doesn't want to run headlong into his, like, painful demise. Um, but he has that, like, real heart of gold. Again, it is not an original character concept, um, but I think there are a few executed as well as Zenitsu is. Yeah, uh, it's it's great. I He's a character I'm really excited to see where we go with in the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, I do have a question, since you've actually read the whole manga up to this point. Yeah. Um, is he that exaggerated in the manga too, or do they play it up more in the anime? Because so much of it is so verbal. I was actually wondering about that. Um, I, it's probably it's played up a little bit more in the anime, just because you can have the lines voiced. Um, but yeah. but no, like it's a pretty consistent okay. um characterization. I think the thing that is probably the most um sort of dialed up in the anime is more like his prowess as a fighter in those modes, like when he like uses the lightning style or whatever, um, lightning breathing technique, Hekiraki Isen. Uh, when he has those moments, they like really like milk the shit out of it in the anime, which I love. Um, the manga approach to those is really interesting because um, they basically, or the Gotoge Sensei kind of executes it as his attack is so fast that the manga can't capture it, right? If you like think of a manga is compared to a video camera a manga is like you're taking pictures with a picture camera and you cannot take a picture that's fast enough and timed well enough to actually see Zenitsu attacking the two times where he uses that move is basically a panel of him of the build-up and is a panel of him having cut through the enemy um and you don't get any of the in between obviously that would not be as like satisfying in the anime so they like make it way way fucking cooler and he's like fucking lightning is emanating from him and all that stuff um, but that's probably like the biggest change to do with his character. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. 
Uh, and then you have Inosuke, who is the one beating up on Zenitsu yes. when we really get him. Inosuke, you see a couple times up to this point, but my favorite thing, Sean, was just watching the theme song in like episode one, and there's a dude running around with a boar on uh -huh. his head, and I'm like, when are we going to meet that character? I assume he's a main character. He's in the theme song, but I had no idea. I had I really didn't know anything about this show before I watched it, other than it was super popular. Um, and then you meet him, and Inosuke might be my favorite character in the show. Mm -hmm. Um Mostly because Yoshitsugu Matsuoka, the voice actor, uh, I could listen to that guy just read the phone book angrily, and it would be the best thing in the world. That actor is unfucking believable. And I just looked this up. Yeah. Did you know he holds the Guinness World Record for the most unique sound bites from a voice actor for an exceeded 10,000 words in the mobile game Is It Wrong to Try to Pick Up Girls in a Dungeon <laughs> Memoria Freeze? I did not He's know that. famous. Yeah, he is, a, he is a fast talker, um, and it is a great performance. It is an amazing idea for a character. That boar head is such an express... I was about to say prop. It's not a prop. It's animated. But, like, it is such an amazing expressive thing. He is also, like, a very clear, like, you know... You know, he is, like, if, if, if uh, Zenitsu is Usopp, Inosuke is Zoro, although a stupider version of Zoro, and, like you know, dialed up to 11 of the absolute, like, hothead swordsman who refuses to learn. Um, but it is so well done. It is so silly. It is so out there. And I think the way the, the spider arc and then the training arc after that, like, subtly in the background humbles and humanizes him is amazing. And I cannot wait to see more of him. And he is uh, my wonderful boar boy, and I love him. Yeah. So, so... Matsuka Yoshitsugu is, for my money, um, in terms of, like, younger uh, male voice actors in Japan, he's, like, the best. Um, like, he has such a just, like, jaw-dropping fucking range. Um, like, his most famous role, by far, is he is the main character in Sword Art Online. Um, and he has, like, what is, like, a stupid number of, like, starring roles in a bunch of shows. He's also the main character of Soma in Shokugeki no Soma, um, which is also that has, like, five seasons or something at this point. Um, he, I'm trying to think of like what are some of the other big ones. So he's yeah, he's Bell, the main character from Don Machi, which is the series that has that mobile game you just read off. Um, he's got he has so many huge credits. He is also known to you, Jonathan, as the voice of Zhao or Show in uh, Genshin Impact, the uh, like demon boy with the wind uh, spear. So that is him. Yes, that's why I wanted that character so badly. Yeah didn't fucking get him yeah the, fuck you genshin impact that that was the one where like when i saw that casting i'm like man they are really fucking serious with this game in japan because it's like this dude is super in demand again he has like so many main leading roles he's also a beetlejuice in uh uh re-zero which is a very popular show and that is like a villain character that is a like dialed up to 110 percent type villain um so yeah he's like an incredibly versatile actor and inosuke is maybe my favorite thing he's done i find inosuke the most raucously funny fucking character in anything. So funny. That whole protracted encounter between him and Tanjiro um, is just incredible. The moment where, like, so they're fighting and and he's super flexible, right? And so he's able to, like, he's, like, fighting super low and all this. And uh, Tanjiro's like, I can't, the only way to counter this is by going even lower. And that's where he does, like, the double, like, Jean-Claude Van Damme, like, splits all the way to the ground um, and, and, like, beats Tanjiro back. And then he says, I can even do this. And he bends all the way backwards and sticks <laughs> his head up from underneath his legs. And then Matsuki Yoshitsuka gives this fucking cackle that is the funniest <laughs> thing in the world. This dude, he's so 
happy to be who he is. He's having so much yes. fun running around and jumping and fighting and like showing off like this weird shit. And because he's this weird like mountain boy who grew up with like, you know, raised by wolves basically or raised by boars, I guess. Um, the backstory of that, how he ended up as a uh, Demon Slayer member is that a Demon Slayer wandered into the mountain where he lived. He beat the shit out of him, heard about what this <laughs> selection thing was, stole the guy's swords, broke the swords with rocks to make them all jagged and cool looking, and just ran up the mountain and ran back down the mountain and won the final selection thing. Um, it's such a funny fucking character. Um and then also, the I think for me, what is the funniest moment in the whole show? Because I think Kimetsu no Yaiba is like mostly like sort of lauded for like the great action scenes and that kind of stuff. But I think it also the humor is so well dialed in, particularly once you have all three of these characters together. In the sequence when they're coming down from the mountain after the manor bit, and um, he I know and, what you're gonna yeah, say. and Inosuke is like, "Come on, fight me, fight me, you!" And then Tanjiro looks at him and say, "My name, I'm not you. My name is Kamada Tanjiro." And it just cuts directly back to Inosuke. He says, "Kamaboko Gonpachiro, I will defeat you." He's <laughs> like, "Who the fuck is that? It's you." No, it's not. And then Zenitsu just says, "Like, shut the fuck up. What are you people talking about? Like the the bickering between these characters and the running joke of Inosuke not being able to remember Tanjiro's name and coming up with the most ridiculous." Ridiculous shit, comic book of Gonpachiro, <laughs> which is the funniest name ever uttered in the Japanese language. Um, it is oh, such a great dynamic. It's so good. And okay, so we haven't talked about maybe my favorite fucking thing in this show, which is the next episode previews, uh -huh. which are just so perfect. Where at the end of every episode, and they're not even, they don't actually do next episode previews, they don't ever show you footage. What they do is they just have like manga panels that look like actual Weekly Shonen Jump, like the green like recycled paper and they have that and they have like basically still animations with like very like stiff mouth movements and they just basically do like little monzai comedy buddy routines and they're so funny and the best one is between tanjiro and you know and uh, inosuke where he just keeps throwing names at tanjiro <laughs> until he finally gets it by accident and that one made me laugh harder than any of them, but I love all of those. Uh, I love that with Inosuke. I love his whole thing where he keeps throwing his head into fucking uh, different trees yes. and just banging it against trees. I think in the whole show, no moment probably got a bigger laugh out of me than when he gets the beautiful new swords at the end uh -huh. of like the series. And then he takes the swords and puts them down and just starts hitting them with rocks and banging holes into them. And it's just like the fucking, the, the timing on that is so yes. good of him. Like so earnestly, like these are great, but they're missing one thing, giant fucking holes. Yeah, him like, and, yeah, uh, walking with the swords over by this lake and he sits down and he picks up a couple of rocks and looks at them and like throws them away. And the dude who made the sword is just like, so uh, what are you doing? And he just starts banging on the sword. I mean, one thing um, I think is kind of an interesting visual change. I think this is probably just made because it's easier for the anime where the like jagged thing in his sword is very consistent in the anime. In the manga, it's just fucked up. Like, it's just a fucked up looking sword. Um, it's, it is like, it's it's kind of even funnier to me because in the anime, you look at those swords, you're like, oh, they, they kind of look like they would be like, be able to do like a type of like kind of attack almost that a normal sword couldn't. In the manga, it's just like, no, you're just fucking that sword up. Like, there's nothing productive about what you're doing. Um, but yes, it's, that, that bit is incredibly funny. It's great. I love that he runs around with swords with no hilt, and he just, like, fucking wraps the, like, still sharp uh -huh. edge and holds on to that, because he's a nut job. Um, no, he is unbelievably funny. That performance is out of this world good. I, I can't imagine this show without him, and 
after if you had told me that after like episode one after like watching Tanjiro's family fucking get brutally murdered and then him defending Nezuko and then you told me the guy with the pig on his head is going to be your favorite I would look at you and go what the fuck are you talking about um but no you know because you know the the whole idea of having these big funny out there characters who also then you learn they have like dramatic interiority and are really sad inside that's anime 101 yeah. everyone does that but this show does it so well where you do we have not gotten the like fully articulated inosuke flashback and learned all of this but the one where he is fighting the big spider dad and he had the guy has his like hand on his head and it's like crushing his fucking skull which i could barely watch because i found that so grisly and inosuke is having these flashbacks to like pieces of his past um um, you know, you can just tell this character is going to make you cry at some point too, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so he's so great. I uh, I cannot wait to be sitting in a theater next week watching him in the movie and and laughing along with a theater full of people. That will be very good for my soul yes. after this last year. Yeah, one other Inosuke moment I really love is uh, after they get back from the whole spider arc, and then he's just in the bed. Um, one I think it's like a really good introduction to that scene. Um, because I just read the manga part of the scene last night. It's like, it's stuck in my head because the manga does it the same way where Tanjiro is carried into that room. Um, and he has the whole conversation with Zenitsu and he says, Zenitsu, where's, where's Inosuke? Is he here too? And then he says, yeah, he's been here the whole time. And then just, you get an image of him lying in the bed. It's a good, like, you know, his characterization there where they start developing him more of where he's realized, oh, like. I am, I'm not like the toughest shit in the world. Like I got my ass kicked and then this, then fucking cloud from Final Fantasy VII showed up and killed the guy in one hit. It's like, maybe I'm not the strongest dude in the world. Um, but there, what Matsuka Yoshitsugu does, I don't even know how the fuck he makes this voice, but the voice he makes with like, you know, case crushed throat, how like gravelly and fucked up it is where he says like, I'm sorry for being weak is both very funny. And then also very sad because you see how depressed he is. Yeah. But, like, the sound, like, the vocal quality he hits. And that's part of what I mean when I say that I think he's the most impressive voice actor. He has, like, some of those roles, particularly when he plays a supporting role in, like, smaller role in other shows, they tend to give him characters that just, like, ask for this vocal quality that is very, like, odd. Um, and he's just so good at producing those sounds while also being, like, a guy who can just be the protagonist of a shonen thing or the protagonist of a romantic comedy, which he is, like, of, like, five major big romantic comedy series. He's the main character. Um, he can both do your, like, normal protagonist character, and then he can also do, let me do the crazy, fucked up, crushed, like, throat voice that I've never heard a voice actor give, like, a voice that sounds like that before. I love the idea of thinking about this guy like in the booth and he's doing like a marathon recording session for maybe a couple different shows and he like ends doing like Sword Art Online just normal voice and like okay okay now you're doing in Nosuke he's like okay give me just a second and then he probably like puts his hands on his hips and goes ah ha 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 or something yes. like crazy like one of his dumb cackles to like get his voice ready and that would be so fun to watch him like jump between those um oh man it's great and Again, that visual design, because it's they don't shy away from showing you his face like early on and once in a while just to remind you there's a person under there and he's very good looking, which is the joke. Yes. Um, but like, I love that they just keep that fucking boar head on all the time and it is so silly. And I love that also like Tanjiro and Zenitsu just kind of accept it after like initial confusion. They're just like, okay, our friend wears a boar head on his face and it's dumb and funny. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, like, a really striking character design. Yeah, yeah, the boar. It's this a, show has it all. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, who else? 
so that's where we I think we start moving into some of the supporting characters. So I want to talk about Shinobu a little bit because I think while she's not a main character, she might secretly be my favorite character in this show. There's something I find just so fascinating about her. So she's the the butterfly um, woman. She's the the bug pillar or the Mushi Bashida of the Hashida of the the Demon Slayer organization. And yeah, that like so she's voiced by Hayami Saori, who's a voice actor I really like. She's in a lot of really good stuff. Um, including in a couple of Fate uh, adaptations as well. Um, but she just has this, like, fine line between, like, utterly sadistic, um, but, like, really enjoying herself and also being angry at the same time, right? Like, she has this very pleasant-sounding voice, but she's just saying the most, like, dark, fucked-up shit. Like, when she is talking to the sister demon... Um, and saying, like, oh, yeah, like, I, I'll forgive you. All you have to do is repent for all the people you've killed. And she's, like, talking through this. So how many people have you killed? And the demon says, like, oh, five. And it's like, really? Five? Interesting. I found, a bunch, I found like, 30 of these cocoons on the west side of the Or she starts it with, I came from the west side of the mountain. The west side of the mountain. There are 30 of those cocoons. And, like, the way she walks through that process, knowing that she's not just going to kill this demon, but the way she kills them... Which is, it's so good. Because her whole thing is that she wants to get, a, like, quote-unquote, get along with the demons. Or find, like, a more humane way to deal with them. Because that's what her older sister wanted before her older sister was killed. And so she's trying to find a way to kill demons without having to cut their heads off. And so she's developing this poison made out of, like, the flowers that the wisteria flowers they don't like. But right now what she's actually doing is poisoning them. And it's a way more horrific fucking death than any other demon has had other than the demon who says Muzan's name and gets ripped apart by her own body. Like, the way the demon, yes. like, convulses and screams and, like, just, like, passes out. And even then, it's like, the poison doesn't even really kill them. They just get paralyzed so that the fucking sun will melt them when the sun comes up. It's, like, the most horrifying way to kill these things. Um, and it's that, like, those inherent contradictions of the character of, like, pleasant on the outside, really kind of the most sadistic and angry character we've met. Um, but she is, like, trying to be not that. Like, she wants to be the pleasant person that she projects. I just find the characterization so, so compelling. Oh, I'm so fascinated to see where it goes because the scene you're describing, I found that along with uh, Muzan Kibutsuji's scene in the finale to be the two most disturbing yes. scenes in the whole show. I think Shinobu's like verbal torture followed by very literal torture of the sister demon is just unbelievably hard to watch, but in the best way. And it is that it's that performance. Cause like we've all heard the version of the, you know, nice, like pleasant voice who's saying fucked up shit. That's a common trope, not just in anime, but I think there's something specific about how it is written, how far it goes, how controlled the actress is there. Uh, it's out of this world. And then I would have predicted after that point that she would be like a pretty heavy obstacle for Tanjiro and like maybe even an antagonistic kind of force. But she's not. She actually does have this incredibly nice side. And that is such a more complicated way to do that character mm -hmm. where like she does want to do good. And she is, I do think she thinks she's being nice to that demon. But she is unbelievably cruel in that way, too. And that is a really interesting... It's one of those things that, like, I'm very excited to read the manga or, or see the rest of the show when it's eventually made, where that character goes, because it's really fascinating. Yeah, and you have... Yeah, because because the I think the way she's depicted in the manga, like, it is, it's just such a strong character 
from the start. I mean, it's partially the character design, I think, is incredibly striking. The way, like, when mm-hmm. she's fighting the sister demon, her um, howdy, her, like, sort of outer coat has these, like, long sleeves that come down that have, like, a butterfly pattern. And she, like, pulls her arms into the sleeves, which is, like, a common thing. It's the same thing that, like, um, um, you get in, like, Yojimbo and stuff like that. Um, of, like, this, like, you know this like interesting visual of a character pulling their sleeves into their kimono. Um, But then while she's jumping around, it creates this visual of a butterfly because of how big the sleeves are. Um, I think it's just a very striking character design that I find the character very mesmerizing, both in the manga, just the way she's written, the way she's drawn. But then when you add Jaime Saudi's performance on top of that, um, it is just, yeah, a really striking character that then has... um, that great scene with her and Tanjiro on the roof where Tanjiro like can smell her anger is like the, like he just turns to her and say, is like, are you angry right now? And she just is like really struck by that. Um, yeah. Great character. Great scenes. It's, it's great. The, it's actually funny when you look at all the Hashira, I hadn't even realized they just like went out and found uh-huh. all the most famous voice actors. It's an amazing assemblage. So you have like, you know, Giyu is Takahiro Sakurai, who's Cloud. You have uh, Sanemi is Tokokazu Seki, who we've talked about many times because he's Domon in G-, G Gundam and he's in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Kenichi Suzumura as Obanai, the snake guy. It's just an incredible, like, stacked cast that I assume all of these people will have big things to do in the future. So far, most of them have only had a couple of lines, obviously. Um, but I'm very excited to see all of them in action. We're going to see Fire Guy in the movie, obviously, because he's on all the posters and it's a setup at the end of the season. But yeah. It's cool. I'm excited to hear from some of these people. Yeah, yeah. It is definitely, it is like a who's who of great voice actors when the Hashida show up. Because uh, you, you can tell they're like, we need to make sure we cast really good people in case the show, like, gets big enough that we're going to, like, be able to have uh, more content. And it definitely got big enough that they're going to have more content. Um, oh, man. Kana Hanazawa yes. is the love Hashira. She is, she has, like, the most lines in those episodes. She's fucking funny yes. in those, too, where she's just in, she loves everything, but loves it all, like, in very specific ways. It's great. Yeah. And, I, yeah, I'm particularly excited to see more of Satoshi Hino's performance as Goku, the fire pillar. Um, in the or the yeah. flame pillar, I should say. Apparently, they're specific about that. Um, yes. Uh, in the movie, because the the because you get a little bit more of him, I think, than some of the other Hashida. In that, like, he the way that he is along with some of those other Hashida, that he's on the side of like, no, we should just execute Tanjiro. Like, fuck this shit. Like, he's with the demon, but he's kind of like Shinobu. He's like he's so pleasant about it. He's so earnest and like energetic. Um, his whole attitude is just like. Like I, it's specifically it's when the the man of the house or like the master of the mansion, however you want to like translate that character's name, the leader of the demon slayers, um, is saying like I think we should like, like I I have given Tandra permission to have like th- with the whole Nezuko situation, like I want you guys to accept it, and he is the first character to just so say with all due respect, but I can't understand what you're saying at all, and he just says it in that tone of voice is like. I don't know what, even what you mean when you're saying that. Um, it's a really great character. Um, and, and I know that, like, that's another one of those things where it's, like, from what I've heard from people in Japan, like, everything I've heard from when people go see the movie, they come out of it, and they fucking love that character to death. So I'm really excited, I'm excited. to see more of him because I think he's probably very, very good. But, God, I'm just scrolling through the list of credits, and I didn't realize how many famous people are in this yeah. show. Like, just down to, like, uh, the swordsmiths are Daisuke Namikawa and Eiji Takamoto. Yep. They have like 10 lines across the show, but that's amazing that you would get both of them. Um, yeah, just everyone in it. Uh, we haven't talked about like, 
uh, Tanjiro's mentor yet. Who voices him? Uh, uh, the trainer. It's uh, I've uh, Hotu Otsuka, who's uh, he is Chibney Crockett in uh, G Gundam. Probably not the thing he's most remembered for, but he's uh, Jiraiya no. in Naruto. It's Naruto's mentor, as long as like he's yeah. in a bunch of other stuff. But yes, yeah, Urokodaki san. Um, Urokodaki, I love Urokodaki. He's great. I love his his crazy mask. It's great. Yeah, they got Shigeru Chiba to be uh, uh, Zenitsu's old old man or his mentor. Um, yeah, Junichi Suabe, who's a character actor I really like. He's the uh, drum demon. They got Uchiyama Koki, who is the who's Banaji from Gundam Unicorn Gundam. He's the he's Dewey, the spider demon. He's one of the Junichi. Oh, that's Suzuki. a great performance, yeah. man. That is a creepy ass character. He's great. Yeah. So yes, it's a it's um, like a ridiculously stacked cast. I think the funniest ones are because I didn't realize this until I was looking up the cast earlier today. Um, all of Tanjiro's siblings who are who have like literally like one or two lines in the first episode, they're all voiced by like big voice actors. So you have Koga Aoi, who is a Paimon in fucking Genshin Impact, voices the littlest brother. Um, Konohama Kohara, who's uh, one of the main characters in uh, Kaguya-sama Love is War. She's one of the little kids. So it's like all of them. Uh, Hoka Kawashima, who is Flay from Gundam Seed, she's the mom. So it's like all those characters too. And then of course Lock on Stratus himself is Tanjiro's dad. Um so you've got you've got a lot of big Gundam That's Seed nuts. double Gundam people. And it's just yeah, it's just like here's these like one off characters. Let's go get like pretty big name voice actors to play all those characters. Um Apparently, you know, uh, UFO Table has has been has had one major controversy in its life of yes. uh, some tax evasion. I wonder if like that they were they they kept their taxes and just gave them to all these big actors to come in and do one line. <laughs> yeah, I, like I wonder if like I wonder if there's like a big sequence later in the series or something that's like a big flashback with those characters because there must be a reason why you'd cast those actors when like really those the siblings only show up. They have like one lineup piece in the first episode and that's it. They're there to die, yeah. I, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Well, okay. So we knocked out the characters. Do you want to break down some of the major, uh, like, fights or moments in the in the series? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about it, because I think we kind of, like, hit a couple of points around the show. But I do want to talk about the first episode, um, which is a really tight adaptation of the first chapter in the manga, which is, like, a double-length chapter as sort of, like, the pilot. Right. Um, and I do think it's just, like, such a great, tight story um, it, it's especially reading the manga. I think it's like quite striking because it does, you know, it, obviously it, it, it is not designed to be like a one and done, but it is kind of built to be like, we need to construct what feels like a full story over the course of what is like about 50 pages of manga, um, to like hook people into this world. And I think there's just, it's so efficient at setting up a bunch of the major concepts, um, all of our major characters with Tanjiro and Nezuko, Tanjiro going down to the village, him on his way back, stopping in that one old man's house. He says, like, don't go up on the mountain at night, tells him about the demons. And then Tanjiro goes back and finds his entire family killed. Like, you just think that whole structure, it works, like, outside of then the conclusion being, and then Tanjiro's, like, Nezuko's actually okay, and Tanjiro's gonna, like, go train to be a demon slayer. Like, if it had a dark ending where Tanjiro is killed or something at the end, it would just be a one-off horror story. It's like what makes it not a horror story is the fact that like um, the cloud from Final Fantasy VII, Gyu decides not to kill him and actually spare him and like give him an opportunity for a future. Like that's the only thing that stops this from just being a like one-off horror story. And I think that that like structure works incredibly well at kind of bringing you into this whole world. 
it's a very narrow slice of what the show will become. You yeah, know, there's a lot of anime pilot chapters. Uh, I mean, this is very common in manga that you start with your like 60 page chapter, and you know, in in a lot of those, you will see a nice little cross section of what the sh- the story is going to become. And this one is not that. It's a very like there, there's not a lot of other episodes of the show that are like that first episode. It's very small scale focused dark there's no hint of humor in that first episode i I don't know how you would integrate that in this one that would be really hard um and it works very well because of that i think it it makes you want to watch and and like certainly my question watching that first episode when i watched it was like this is great i'm really curious what the show is you know what i mean because it does not give you that indication it is like this short story uh and then you have to go and you're going to realize okay so this is he's going to join this organization and fight demons and i've seen this kind of shape before but you don't necessarily know outside of that first chapter and that gives it a very distinctive feel and of course it fits to a 25 minute anime episode more or less perfectly um (laughs) as as these things sometimes do um, but it's great. I'm. It's a. It's a very strong start. Yeah. In that regard, I think the thing it's most similar to is Yu Yu Hakusho, which has a similar like the first story arc, which in that case is like two or three episodes, but is like entirely about the main character is dies. He is a ghost. How does he come back into his body? And then the rest of the show is about now he's like contacted and like he's like part of the spirit world. Now he has to fight demons and evil ghosts and stuff as like the spirit detective. But yeah, I think it's like a similar concept that works really well of let's just get like a tone and a style in our main character, nail them in this like broadly kind of standalone story and then use that as your entry point into now let's expand it out into something that's a more familiar shonen style structure. Yes. And as good as that is, I will say the moment that sold me on the show, if we're like going forward, like what made me think now I see why this is so special Mm -hmm. for me is during final selection yeah, and it is when um, t- well, first off, I think the the third episode, which is about those two kids who were Urokodaki's like disciples who got killed during final selection, and then they they Tanjiro fights him and winds up cutting the rock. I thought that was really good. Like that made me uh, sit up and take note. Like, okay, this is now they're cooking. But then it is final selection when Tanjiro has his first big battle and finds the opening thread for the first time, and they kind of introduce the format that a lot of these fights are going to take. Um, and then at the start of the following episode he goes and like puts his hand on the dying demon Mm -hmm. and sees its entire life story and that was where i went oh this is why demon slayer is one of the biggest things in the world right now isn't it and i really do think that is my my thesis i do think like the action and the animation and the humor and all these things we've been talking about are great but i do think the ultimate one thing that makes this show so fucking special is tanjiro's compassion and the idea of defeating a demon is not the most important moment in that relationship with the demon. It is the moment he reaches out afterwards and empathizes. And I'm really glad as the show goes on that that is not just something I picked up on early that I liked. It is the central thing to the show. Yeah, and and I think one thing that's interesting is is the show was actually originally shown as... So there was like a brief limited tour of the first five episodes effectively edited into a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, with with you're kind of talking about the fifth episode is when he gets the sword and all of that. Um, right. Uh, and, the, and like, actually, I think there's like a couple of other the arcs were edited into movies in different like formats because it is like very arc focused and it's very easy to like imagine like it being just divided up into different movies. I think it's one of the reasons why it's very easy to imagine how the movie and train movie is going to work as a, as a movie. Um, but but yes, that like. I think that works so well, those first five episodes, as that's really what is 
what the formula of Kimetsu no Yaiba is, right? It gets you get your little training bit, mm-hmm. you get your sort of empathy from Tanjiro, you get your big um, uh, demon fight, and then you end that fight with him, as you say, holding his hand. And it's the first time you get that like sense of Tanjiro's empathy as one of his main sort of character traits. And then I think like, and I do feel like that is a very intentional choice to have that structured that way, because I think that's also to basically where the end of the um, volume one is about there. Um, because that's also where it ends with him getting the sword, right? It's important to remember the series is named after the swords. It's called Kimetsu no Yaiba. Um, so, like, I think there's, like, a pretty conscious, like, it's building up to him getting his own sword. Um, and that's, like, where the story of Kimetsu no Yaiba really starts is once he gets his his own um, Nichirinto sword. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I would very much recommend, I probably should have said this earlier, because if you're still listening, you've probably seen the show. But if you were starting the show, I would recommend carve out time and watch the first five. Like, that's really, you want to, like, sit down and digest those, and then you will totally know if you are on board with this or not, right? Yes, yeah, because that's basically how I watched it the second time, since I knew what the story was and where the arcs fell, is basically, like, I would sit down and watch whatever that arc was five or six episodes and i'd be like that's my kimetsu chunk for a day and i did that basically every day of spring break and watched through the whole show um and it's like that's like kind of like the way i would recommend consuming it obviously it's hard to do that when you don't know where the breaks are going to be because you haven't seen, seen it before but um yeah it is it's well yeah. structured in that arc format um as well as like i think one thing that stands out about the anime um, when we talk specifically about episode 19 is the most successful of this, but it also finds really strong ways to build these stories into episodes. That I think is another standout thing that a, a lot of other shows in this genre are not often very good at that. Um, and they just feel right. too heavily serialized and not focusing on what is the shape of this one 22 minute like chunk of TV. Um, and I think Kimetsu no Yaiba is very good at that uh, quite consistently. I agree, because I actually didn't do a lot of long binges with this show. Like, I think the most I watched in one sitting was three. And it's because I think the episodes are just so successful at that, that oftentimes I would watch one or two, and I would feel like I got such a full, like, meal, I needed to go digest it. Like, um, episode 19 is the most extreme example of this, but I sat down to watch episodes 18 and 19, and I was planning to watch much more than that that night. And then I saw episode 19, and I went, okay, well, I'm turning off the TV now. I can't digest any more than that. And I went and, like, took a little walk and took a shower. I was just like, I need to, like, just do something where my head is just thinking about this, you know? And that's that's a mark of very effective TV structuring. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, do you want to go through some of the... Do you want to talk about the animation? Do you want to talk about some of the big, like, fights and, and the, the different ones that are maybe our favorites? Although they're all good. Yeah, they're all very good. I do think so. Like for me, I think the show, there's a pretty clear moment where, and I think this is actually kind of true of the manga as well. Is I think you like, you get to the manor story arc and that's where to me, like Kimetsu no Yaiba fully takes shape. I think like, I agree. If there's like a weakness, I think it's that like little intermittent period there. Like it's the kind of like the Tamayo-san section is not bad, but it feels like it's a little bit like not sure fully where it's going. Um, that's one of those that, because uh, I agree, and I think there is some really great stuff there. Like, I mean, him just bumping into Muzan Kibutsuji in the city when they're there. Uh, they're in Asatsuka, right? Or something? Uh, I think they're right there um, in Tokyo. Oh, I thought they were in Asakusa. Um, I might be I'll, wrong. Anyway, I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Asa- um, 
I'm looking it up right now. Uh, eh, they don't say on Wikipedia. That's okay. They're in anyway, a major Japanese city. Uh, they're in a major Japanese city. But anyway, like, I love all of that. And the whole, like, him, that episode where he, it's called Muzan Kibutsuji, where he meets him and, like, sees him and, like, he's basically, like, pride from Full Metal Alchemist and he's got a family and it's like, oh my god, this is crazy. And I was like, oh, wow, this is crazy. This is great. And then I do think the one after that, like, I think it's, like, maybe just a little too long. And the whole fight with, like, the arrows and stuff is a really cool idea that felt to me like something that probably worked better on the page and I don't know if it fully like felt like it's like somehow too slow in how it's visualized for it to have all the full power for me I think it's cool but whatever but then I agree that the manor and I specifically think the fight in the manor with yes. the guy with the drum hitting like that's where you that's where UFO table I feel like fully like just goes for the jugular and hooks you with like this is what we are capable of doing uh, bow down to us mortals um, and that's what it feels like once you get out of the manor stuff yeah yeah so it's definitely yeah the manor where um, and it's, it's that thing where like so so that's where UFO table starts putting in more of their own stuff so up to that point like it is a very very close adaptation of of the manga obviously you're filling in like action beats and stuff um, but but it's it's very 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 close and then once you get to the manor that's where they start pulling out more of like let's put more of the ufo table kind of touch onto these sequences um and less relying on like the manga as your sort of basically your storyboards of the sequence and more using that as inspiration for and like the basis of what is happening but let's find our own way to kind of portray it um and i think that that's very smart because i mean that the sequences in the manga are good but the manga's ability to portray the concept of rooms shifting and like moving around and gravity changing is relatively limited. Um, and and I think that that's what like there's one section like a couple of pages particular that I think don't work super well in the manga there because it's too busy. It's too much trying to show how much is moving. Um, I think it sort of loses some of the simplicity. But like the core idea of that s sequence and that whole area is so strong. Right, of having this, again, like it's very got that horror root to it, of you have this monstrous demon who has these Suzumi drums embedded in his body. And when he hits the drums, the room shifts or you get transported somewhere else so you're stuck in this manner. Um, and it's such a strong conceit. And then what UFO Table does, and this is where you can see very much the impact of their technique of blending 3D backgrounds with 2D animation, they get some 3D camera type shots in there that are just, I think, some of the like the best looking shit. And some of it is like very flashy. I think one of my favorite shots um, is the one at the very beginning of that sequence where Tanjiro and the little girl um, are kind of separated and they're standing in the middle of the room and you have an orbital camera spinning around them. And as it's spinning, you get the Suzumi drum beat happening. Every time you get the beat, the background just flashes to a different background. And that would be a shot that if you were doing that in traditional 2D animation, it would be phenomenally expensive to animate the background to be able to have an orbital camera movement like that, um, especially when you're switching the background, which backgrounds are highly detailed in animation. Um, and so using your 3D elements to make that way more practical while still showing off how talented their 2D animators are with the expressions on Tanjiro's face, um, like how perfect the camera movement is replicated by animating Tanjiro. Um, it is just like... I mean, all cross, I think, is impressive. That shot is one of the ones where when it happens at the beginning of that arc, you're like, oh, shit, UFO table showed up, and, like, they're here to fucking play. Yes. So, can we just... Let's just talk about the animation. Yes. And 
it's incredible. There's so many layers of it. I, the first thing that struck me starting to watch the show is, I think this might be the most effective like adaptation of a manga character design style mm-hmm. into moving animation I've ever seen. Of, And actually, the, the character designs are actually a little more refined than they are in the manga from what I've seen. You've read more of the manga. They feel a little more like finished and like fleshed yes. out in this. But they do look like very hand-drawn and not just hand-drawn but they look hand-drawn by like a person at their desk in the way manga is you know and they go down to like having things that are usually taken out in anime adaptations like um gotoge often draws tanjiro with like little lines on his face to kind of show a furrowed brow or something and they keep that in the anime and they keep a lot of those little sort of manga signifiers that you usually cut out and so it feels extremely handcrafted and this is something like digital animation has been moving towards a lot in recent years uh tatsuya nagamine has done a ton of this at toei with like Dragon Ball Super and the Wano arc of One Piece and now the Dragon Quest anime where you have these like line filters that allow you to do this more. Um, But the whole anime industry is doing a lot more of it. But this is, I think, the best version of that I've seen where it just looks exquisite. Uh, And then you have these backgrounds that are just unbelievably like detailed and beautiful in this show. But that's the 2D side of it because then you get to the 3D side of it. And I think this is an incredible discussion worth having Mm -hmm. because... Obviously, the the whole idea of, like, what does anime become when you have 3D elements is a fraught topic, and it has been fraught since, like, the early 2000s when you start seeing this in, in stuff, right? Yeah. And I feel like what you can do with digital animation, it, it's taken on a bunch of different guises. There is the straight-up just integrating CGI into anime, which no one ever really likes when it's just sort of clumsily, like, here's CGI, right? Yeah. Um, and you have using anim- using computers to do stuff that actually looks more hand-drawn. Isao Takahata has done this in My Neighbors the Yamadas and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, which are going for a really handcrafted look that maybe paradoxically couldn't be done without the aid of computers, you know? But it is not breaking sort of the normal, like, visual codes of anime in that sense. And then you have what UFO Table is going for. You, well, you also have just straight up 3D CGI anime, like the new loop in the third movie, which is phenomenal and fascinating and really interesting to look at. But then you have what UFO Table is doing here, which is a really clear blend that is often fairly segregated, where when they kick into a sequence that's going to use a 3D camera, the sequence uses it. It's yeah. not like a shot here and then you go back and it's really herky-jerky. It's a very fluid sense of how this works. So... Sean, do you mind if I bring in some film theory into this? Go ahead. This is why we, okay. we have this podcast, is for us to just talk about the bullshit we like. And you obviously are getting your PhD in film studies, yes. so probably you should talk about it. So this is this was on my mind watching the whole show, because I recently, um, if you haven't heard recent episodes, I talked about this. I sat for my comprehensive PhD exams, which is where you make up these giant reading lists, and then you sit for three separate four-hour tests, 12 hours of testing total, where you write nine overall essays in response to big theoretical and historical questions. And one of the readings I encountered that I really loved was by a guy named Thomas Lamar. It's this book, The Anime Machine, um, that people should... Well, it's, it's very dense, but it is worth reading because he does the best job rigorously theorizing anime I've seen an English-language scholar do. Like, by far, most anime scholarship is utter fucking garbage mm-hmm. in English, um, and his is really good. But um, So I'm going to read from one of my test answers I did because this is better than me just talking off the cuff. I actually wrote and quoted and stuff. So let me go through this. Um, 
I'm going to start with, so, so what I was writing about in this test answer was about sort of ways to theorize animation in the digital age and like as the word animation has become kind of fraught in film studies because there's this whole theoretical basis to it. Um, but I first I'm talking about the scholar Tom Gunning, who's very famous, and he argues for this separation of animation into two meanings. Animation one, which is just the basic machinic creation of cinema where all cinema is animation because it's still images that you move fast and then they are it's an illusion yeah. of motion and then animation two is what we commonly associate which is drawings puppets bits of paper clay things that are not animate but we make move um and this is very relevant to western film animation studies because there's a whole debate of like well isn't all film animation what do we mean when we say animation and it's you know it's very insular subject so tom gunning has those two but then I pick up here, and, and this is where I'm going to quote from myself. Uh, Gunning's verbal separation is a useful thought framework, but unworkable in discussion or conversation. Saying or typing animation one and animation two, especially over a long period of time, obfuscates its own usefulness. For this practical reason, as well as offering a deeper, richer, and more workable framework for thinking, I prefer Thomas Lamar's dichotomy between what he calls the cinematic and the animatic in his book, The Anime Machine. For one, Lamar is one of the few animation theorists to use Japanese anime as the material base of his theory, which as he points out is necessary given that Japan is the largest producer of animation in the world and the only large-scale animation movement that accounts for both the influences of Hollywood history and hegemony while also striking its own distinct path, therefore allowing us to see the inherent differences in the possibility of animation more starkly. This is where the term animatic comes from, which he contrasts with the cinematic, two proposed tendencies of film style. The animatic, based around the stable apparatus of cell animation's animation stand, is based around compositing multiple planes of the image as is central to cell animation, and focuses on movement on or between surfaces. The cinematic, which is based around the mobile apparatus of the camera, focuses on movement into depth. These two tendencies are generally aligned with animation and live action respectively, but they do not have to be, as either form of filmmaking can aim to embrace one tendency or both based on a given situation. This framework is of great use historically and is particularly valuable in today's discussions on digital technologies' impact on live action filmmaking. As Lamar points out, today's spectacle-driven CGI effects heavy live action films are increasingly concerned with matters of compositing so central to the visual and ideological dimensions of the animatic, to which I would add animated CGI films in Hollywood and increasingly China, which are increasingly interested in harnessing the cinematic, perfects, uh, perhaps best exemplified by the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, which hired uh, Roger Deakins, the legendary cinematographer, as a visual consultant, going to great lengths to mimic cinematographic visual techniques um, and being less concerned with compositing. I talk about some other examples here, um, but then just for one other later in this, I'm talking about Hayao Miyazaki in particular, who he uses. Um, Lamar positions Miyazaki's craft and style within his cinematic animatic framework, wherein Miyazaki is posited as exemplary of the animatic, compositing the relationship between layers of animation in the traditional cell process is the core of Lamar's framework, and Miyazaki's style is here examined at length, presenting the director as a master of open compositing, exploiting space between the layers rather than attempting to flatten the distance between them, whose use of space and positionality reflects Miyazaki's thematic and ideological view of the world. Um, and there's a whole thing about this I could get into. But um, that kind of gives you an idea. And this is such a useful thought framework. Like this is where theory is actually very useful mm -hmm. in film studies because it gives you a way to describe what we mean when we say like 
standard anime because like standard 2d anime is not made anymore in the way it was in 1970 with like layers of cells and a bunch of people hunched over at desks doing a billion drawings completely by hand. You have a lot of that, but now computers have taken over so many of these tasks. You don't actually film animation, you scan it. There's all sorts of different things going on. And yet the fundamental visual codes of say Gundam 00 are the same fundamental visual codes of Mobile Suit Gundam 1979. Yeah. It is animatic. It is based on compositing. It is not a much... Of, like, one way to think of this, it's oversimplified, but movement into depth is cinematic, and movement kind of across or between surfaces is animatic, and that is what most anime and animation does. But this is where I wanted to bring it in with Kimetsu no Yaiba, because this gives us a really great way to think about it, because Kimetsu is very thoughtful about where it is animatic and it is about compositing and is a very traditional animation style, the codes of which we are... If you watch any amount of anime, you're just super used to how these things look. And then when it bursts into motion in this 3D space, it abandons that and becomes very cinematic and becomes about actual like mobile cameras and about movement in and between depth. And it is... It is attention-grabbing because it is meant to be. It is Tanjiro is entering a different space. The fight is happening on almost a different plane. And so those separations really matter. And what they do is they bring the cinematic into the space of anime, where it still looks like anime. It still has the same character designs. It doesn't suddenly... It's not... They've put, like, the animation over the CGI. So you can tell that this is still animation. Um, so it's not that kind of jarring, but what is jarring about it is these different codes being employed and combined in really dynamic ways, and that to me presents so many fascinating, wonderful possibilities for the future of anime, because this is, some, this is a show that really understands the past, present, and future, and different ways of filmmaking, and I know this is a long spiel for me, I just think it's really useful for thinking about this show in particular. Yeah, and and it's this way by which they can take advantage of like the things that these different forms of filmmaking are good at and fuse yes. them together and get these like sequences that are like truly jaw dropping. I mean, they're like at their core, they're jaw dropping because they're like incredibly well directed, like they're well conceived. Um, and those big three D camera sequences are universally things that are like added by UFO table. They're not like a replication of something that is happening in the manga. Most sequences that use them um, are ones that don't really have an equivalent anywhere in the manga, other than like these two characters are fighting, but there's no panel that is showing like the same sequence of movements being taken by the character, simply because if you are trying to follow that, you it wouldn't make sense to try to use a 3D camera to do it because the manga obviously is about as far away from being able to use a 3D camera as you could get. Um, so... Well, and this is why the the whole animatic style yeah. has such deep roots, is it comes from manga. And manga is a flat, inherently 2D, side view kind of thing that is not about movement into depth. And it's about literal like image collaging and compositing in your eyes as you go across the different panels. Um, and so, yeah, it's an inherent rethinking of space. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'm going to post to Jonathan in our chat. And this is something I'm going to, when this podcast goes up, I'll make a Twitter thread as well that just has some of these links to a bunch of my favorite shots from the show. So like one I want to just kind of like talk about very directly is there's a 16 second shot in the manner sequence where 
Um, it's after the, the demon hits his like drums like three or four times in a row. And so the room spins around in multiple different ways. And it's almost one like entire long shot. Um, it's about the one, an 11 long like sustained sequence of Tanjiro tumbling around in the room as the room shifts with him. And then the camera moves in behind him, follows him down towards the demon um, where then the demon slice, slices at him. And that's the first cut. And then Tanjiro like dodges and then recovers. Um, and that is a sequence that again, like there's not quite an equivalent to this in the manga that's trying to represent. This is like, they're adding in different dynamics into the fight sequence. But I think one of the things that's really remarkable is that you can imagine ways that a 3D movie camera would be able to get some of these kinds of shots, although you'd have to do so much of it with CGI. Um, but like, there's something about when you have 2D animated elements and 2D animated characters that lends such a stark clarity to movement and to what is in the frame because you design so specifically every single element that exists in the frame when you are drawing it 2D, right? You're not relying on a 3D model that exists like independent of the scene. You're not relying on an actor that exists independent of the scene. Everything that's in the scene was made for the scene, specifically for the scene by people drawing it by hand. Um, and so that combination of complex 3D movement you might see in a CG movie or in a like action film, combined with the incredible stark clarity of character and movement that 2D animation and 2D animation techniques can blend or can bring to it, um, just creates such, I think, a like dynamic and exciting element to the visual part of the show. That like, and this is something that is again, this is very UFO table. Um, so if you watch any of their Fate adaptations, if you watch Kata no Kyokai, which is where this style like really starts from with them, um, like they are so good at this and have been for like years, like over ten years at this point. Um, really pioneering the style. And again, you're you're starting to see other studios starting to kind of catch up to a little bit of this. But there is still these sequences in Kimetsu that like I just find utterly jaw-dropping that combine all those pieces together to give you something that you just would never see in anything else. Well, and this is why I love, you know, what you were explaining about their studio culture and that they have the digital artists, the, the CGI artists and the hand, you know, 2D artists working together. They're not like in a separate building, never going to meet. They're not, you know, um, outsourcing at all. And, and it's why I also wanted to bring in these two tendencies, the animatic and the cinematic, because it feels like they have a deep understanding of both of those and an idea of how they can work together because that's what you're seeing in a scene like this, yeah. right? Of where you are bringing a cinematic camera into the codes of like an, an animatic visual style and you're sort of rupturing it and those ruptures become really powerful moments. It's, again, they know that you are going to be jarred a little when it happens, right? Because this looks different than the rest of the show, but it's jarred for the right reason. Like, what is happening to Tanjiro there? Something fucking crazy yeah. that he's never seen before. So it should be jarring, and it's jarring in the best, most imaginative way. And like a lot of good CGI movies now, it's doing stuff with the camera, as you noted, Sean, that would be really hard to do with an actual film camera, but that a film camera can theoretically do because it is unbound and it can move, right? It's human hands that are a little limited. So that's why the CGI becomes so important. And yes, I agree with everything you said. Like the specific blend they are going for is just so far and beyond what anyone else I feel like has, has quite imagined what you can do with these tools in tandem with each other and that's something that makes this so special it makes me want to see some of ufo tables other stuff too because it is such a cool idea and it offers such a rich like 
vein of of analysis for for what the future of anime could look like not saying like everything should look like this but this is a great example of one studio planting a flag and saying well here's one way we can integrate these tools and evolve and synthesize things you know and i'm excited to see and, and certainly some other people have done great versions of this i'm really fascinated like i said with that new loop in the third movie mm -hmm. which does an amazing job with just taking a, a very straight anime style and then doing it in cg in a cinematic 3d view um and this is another version of that in a, in a very different way and it's it's wonderful and fascinating absolutely so is now yeah. the time where we have to talk about episode 19 jonathan yes but just a second okay. i do just want to say episode 19 is my favorite like episode it's the best fight I think the other best fight in the show to me is the one with the with the drum and, and the one yes. you were just talking about. I think that's like my number two. And then probably beyond, below that is various ones from the spider forest because there's a bunch of great ones in there. I particularly love the one that Tanjiro and Inosuke like team up for. And Inosuke at the end like realizes, oh my god, Tanjiro, like he, un he sees everything. He sees the flow. He's not looking for the strike. He's looking at the flow. Those are all things I love. Uh, but all of it pales in comparison, as most things do, to what they pull off in episode 19, uh, Hinokami. Holy fuck. Yeah, so I remember very distinctly when episode 19 dropped. Because I don't, so I don't watch these kinds of shows as they air because I like to usually watch a few episodes at a time. Um, but like I do, but I keep kind of like feelers out in some communities online just to be like, okay, when there's our shows airing, what's like the stuff that people are picking out that seems really good? And I kind of like put that in like my list of, okay, when the season is over, I want to watch this show, this show, and that show. Um, and so Kimetsu Yaiba was one that had been on my radar for a while because people were really liking it. Um, but after episode 19 dropped, people lost their fucking shit. And I just saw it. And I'm like, what the fuck happens in episode 19 of this goddamn show? I was like, and I just remember so distinctly, like the, like the words Kimetsu Yaiba in episode 19 were like burnt into my head. Uh, cause I was like, man, like, like the reaction online was so explosive. on like this, like incredibly positive way. Um, and I was like, man, okay. Like I knew that people were kind of into this show. But I didn't know they were this in. And I think that's when I looked into it and saw that it was being made by UFO Table, which again, I wouldn't have pegged because UFO Table has never done in their like modern era of the studio in a manga adaptation. They've always done either something like based on a game or based on a visual novel, um, or I guess a series of light novels in the case of Kata no Kyokai. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, UFO Table did this. Probably some crazy fucking shit happens in episode 19, huh? Um, so yeah, then when I was watching the show, I had that like in my head. For most of it, of like, I don't know what's going to happen, but something fucking crazy is going to happen in episode 19. And then episode 19 happens, and it is, like, one of the best episodes of anime I have ever seen in my life. Like, it is so unbelievably good. And it's something where, especially reading the manga, it highlighted for me, like, this is where I think some of, like, the smartest, like, nips and tucks they do as an adaptation to sort of put this into an episode format are. So, like, one thing they do to set this up as like its own episode. Cause I rewatched this episode last night. Cause I was like, I need to watch episode 19 again, right before we do the podcast. Cause it's fucking episode 19 of Kimetsu no Yaiba is the episode opens with a little brief scene with the, of Inosuke that picks up from where the previous episode left off. Then you get Gudenge by Lisa, like, like all time great anime opening song. And then you get, um, you pick up with Zenitsu uh, and Zenitsu on top of the manor, they're like the house thing that is like suspended by spider webs and shinobu's there and he's 
breathing, you know, trying to keep himself alive. And he says, like, Ji-chan, Ji-chan, like Gramps, Gramps. And she says, who are you calling Grandpa? Um, he says, I could hear him. He told me not to give up. He told me not to give up. And then and there Shinobu sort of, as she's administering me- medicine to Zenitsu, she describes like, oh, the reason I heard that the reason why people have these, like your life flashes before your eyes thing happens is because your body is trying to relive all of your memories and experiences to try to find a way to survive whatever this is. That scene is not in the manga. Um, the narrative, the, wow. yeah, what Shinobu says is basically pulled from a narrative caption at the end because the manga has like lightly uses a narrator. It's not like a frequent device, but occasionally a, a like disembodied narrator will comment on something and give like context. And that's something that over the frame of they because use this exact shot in the anime of like Tandra's life like shattered in glass in front of him. There are narrative block boxes in that panel of the manga that go through that exact same thought process sort of explaining what's happening. I think it's like such a smart adaptational choice to say, let's put a little extra scene with Zenitsu here, take some of that content, give it to Shinobu to characterize it in the fiction and sort of construct a circular narrative device by which at the beginning of the episode you are given this concept of your life flashing before your eyes and then like basically at the beginning of the climactic moment of the episode you are then seeing that happen to a different character to create a sense of flow within the story um and there are lots of little things like that that they do in terms of changing some of the pacing of the fight with dewey they add in the moment where uh, Dewey says to Tanjiro, like, oh, you think that if all you could do is if you could just have that sword connect with my neck, you'd be able to win? Like, go for it. And then Tanjiro swings and hits through his neck and he can't cut through it. That is not from the manga. They put that scene into the anime to set up specifically the stakes for the expanded climax of the episode they put in where you have the big sequence where he has his flashback to his father. He uses the Hinokami Kagura Inbu style cuts through the threads um, and then has this big, long, crazy tracking shot um, that I'll share uh, that I have the gif of um, that is just like a masterpiece, like unbelievable jaw-dropping piece of animation that obviously that whole bit is not really in the manga. It's just he kind of cuts through and it's kind of like two or three like attack dodge things that happen that will be lead up to that last cut on the neck. Um, But if they're going to really expand that sequence out, they need to create the specific tension of can Tanjiro even cut the demon's neck? You don't you do like you don't necessarily know. There's lots of little pieces like that in episode 19 where it feels like they took a lot of care that they looked at what is like one of the most remarkable narrative sequences in the stretch of the manga we're adapting. What is kind of going to be really the action climax of the season? It's going to be this sequence. Um, So let's really put a lot of energy into making that sequence feel climactic and not just here's the end of another one of these story arcs where in the manga it's a really great sequence still but it's not it doesn't feel like gotoge sensei is like throwing 110 percent into that scene because she they don't need to it's not that important um in like the overall scheme of the entire manga it's just another sequence in the anime it's the last big action scene you have it's the big action climax of your whole season so they really put so much love and care into making sure that it was as perfect an episode as possible and that's just in terms of like that action and like plot setup but then really it's all to serve the purpose of the main narrative conflict which is between Dewey who is your foil for Tanjiro who is using violence to try to construct forcibly a family for himself 
versus Tanjiro, who has had who violence has taken his family from him, and he is desperately trying to protect the one piece of family he has left. Like that core narrative element is so powerful, um, and they just took everything they had to build an entire episode to execute on that as perfectly as possible, and that is how you get Hinokami episode nineteen, which is just I think like a masterpiece episode of animation. I one hundred percent agree. Absolutely. And I want to double back on all the things I love about this scene and we'll talk about it more in a second. But with you talking about like the adaptation choices, choices, I do just want to raise like one kind of nagging issue for me with all of this. Because I also was like super curious when I watched this, like what the hell is this in the manga? And what the thing is, so this scene is amazing. It's, it's more than amazing. It is one of the best scenes of TV anime ever. It's unbelievable. And when it happened, I watched, I was like, oh my God, I turned it off. I went and like, walked around a little bit and then I took a shower just to like think about mm -hmm. it and I went to bed and I watched the next one the next morning and I really felt quite a big sense of deflation from the demon not actually being dead like that felt like that felt cheap to me in a way that like was discordant and then I went and looked at it in the manga and it's less discordant in the manga because that is a less big mm -hmm. moment in the manga and and like you just go from one page to the next. And I know in like serialization, you would have had to wait a week, but like, especially for reading it in the volume, it doesn't have the music. It doesn't, it's, it's not like visually a giant leap from the stuff around it. Um, they don't, they haven't added those thematic threads that you're pointing out. They haven't made this in, in Gotoge's manga. It is not the key thematic closer to an entire like season of anime. Um, and so the demon, he didn't actually kill it. Okay. Do you think they made the moment too big, given that the demon isn't actually dead and Tanjiro didn't kill it and didn't actually cut through its neck? So I like I think I kind of felt that way a little bit the first time I watched it. On rewatching, no, I think mostly because to me it is such a like triumph of theme, right, for Tanjiro yeah. that like even if he doesn't literally kill the demon, I mean one like him doing this is what saves their lives, right? Like him being able yes. to fight back despite all odds, like whether or not he is literally able to kill. Um, Nui here or not he is able to buy enough time for Giyu to show up and then and then when Giyu shows up Giyu just like takes care of him right like it's kind of um nothing with like a the vague implication that like part of it is because the demon has like so right it's expended itself enough on this fight with Tanjiro it can't even do anything to Giyu he just like uses Nagi and kills him in one hit um that, I think yeah I think on first watch you're so like thrust through the sequence with the animation and the music and, and everything um they i think it does feel a little bit disappointing but then on second viewing I, I think it worked for me really well how expressive it is because it so feels expressive of what tandro is feeling inside explodes out like symbolically in the visuals of the show because one thing i think is like important to like keep in mind that i think is really fascinating about kimetsu yaiba is that they have this visual of like the water and the fire and the lightning, but that doesn't literally exist outside of, and we'll talk about it in a second, like the, the fire of the last strike that Tanjiro does do, is literally fire because that's like Nezuko's blood that's exploding. Um, but other than that, when he goes from water breathing style to Hinokami Kagura, that's not him all of a sudden, instead of water emanating from his sword, fire emanates from his sword. There is, like, people aren't getting wet when he's using the water breathing techniques. Right. It's it's a visual expression of, like, the style of combat he's using. 
And so I think there's something about that of like the expressiveness of it in that it's like, in some ways, like almost not literal, how you're supposed to interpret some of what's happening there. Um, it's more emotional. I think the way that it delivers this thematic triumph for Tandra, where this demon represents this idea that you can get what you want from other people and those relationships just by using fear and violence to kowtow them into obeying you. And Tandra's declaration of, I mean, two things. He has two really great lines. Earlier he in the episode, he has a line where he says, like, and I love the way it's phrased in Japanese, where he says, Fuzakiru no wa taiga ni shiro, which is like, basically, cut out the fucking bullshit. Like, I've had enough of your horse shit. Like, you will never be able to get what you want by doing the things that you're doing. And it's like you, and, and it's part of, I think, was, is it like reflects that he, in some ways, is still thinking about the demon and what the demon wants and needs and saying it's like what you're doing is never going to get you what you want and then at the end of the episode he has his big declaration which is your big shonen protagonist scream of um you know the bonds between myself and nezuko will never be cut um and then he defeats dewey like that sort of thematic climax i think works for me so well um that the kind of minor disinflation of that dewey is actually alive um didn't really affect me much on the second viewing so I agree with all of that. And the more I've thought about it, and I'm taking a little bit of a devil's advocate position because I just think it's worth talking mm -hmm. about. Because the more I think about it, the more I generally agree. I guess it's just the... There is just this discordance to me of uh, all of that is true, but if Giyu didn't magically show up at that second, they'd be dead anyway. Like, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I, I guess, and especially like if they were already making adaptational changes... I wonder if for the anime it would have been better for like it he's just dead and Giyu comes by and is like holy shit this kid's crazy I like I don't know I don't know and and may, this is maybe because I haven't read more and I I assume the moment when Tanjiro inevitably does kill one of the twelve demons is a giant like uh, you know uh, status quo shifting moment in the story and so yeah. maybe they just can't move that I mean up, one I yeah one thing I'm gonna say Jonathan is like they really can't because that is specifically what the man of the manor tells Tanjiro in the meeting with the Hashida is go out and kill a Juni Kizuki and that will make people listen to you um so that's clearly yeah. like a big point for the story is that they need he needs to have a fight with a Juni Kizuki where he wins um sort of yeah. unassisted so yeah like i think it would be too much for him to be able to do that now so they certainly would not have been able to like just have him defeat dewey because i do think there's something like i think it works for me in the sense of like tandro still has a lot of room to grow right like we're not anywhere near yeah. the end of this series so like reinforcing the like these demons love like like how powerful they are right like how much on a pedestal the juni kizuki are which is something the show like repeatedly reinforces by them repeatedly thinking they're facing one and then it's not like it's too easy it's too e simple um and then also then you get the the really powerful contrast of then having you be able to just sort of do it with his special magic 11th yeah. technique that he has made up um of the 10 water breathing techniques well here's 11 motherfucker um you know, now you're dead Yes. No, and, and overall, again, I agree with you. I'm, I'm sort of, like, trying to think of, like, the, you know, why was there that sort of visceral disappointment for me? But the more I think about it, the more I absolutely agree with you. And I think the smart thing it does is that that is what kicks us into this being episode 19 of 26. In some sense, you could see the version of this where that is episode 25. Uh -huh. And then 26 is cleanup and it's the mic drop, right? 
but it's not. And and the reason for making this not the end of the season isn't just because they want to hype up the movie. That's part of it, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. But it's not the only reason, right? And I do think part of it is because the overall arc isn't Tanjiro got all the power in one. It's that he got the power he needs. He has that raw potential, but the world is so much bigger. And so the final seven episodes are the world is so much bigger, right? And that ultimately what this season is, is they even call it, they're like the Tanjiro coming of age arc is what they call it at the end. Um, And that makes sense because that is the overall arc where the climax in a, in a very like, like classical narrative sense where the climax is not the end. It's somewhere in the middle is episode 19. But then the rest of the story is that come down of, Oh my God, the demon was still alive. Oh my God, Gyu can kill it in one hit and he can kill it in one hit with this secret 11th technique. Oh my God, there are all these Hashira. They're so powerful. They want to kill my sister. There's this fucking blind burned guy who they all bow down to. Oh my God, people do total concentration breathing 24 hours a day while they're sleeping, right? So that's what those final seven episodes become about is that sort of like expansion of the world and Tanjiro seeing his place within it and recommitting himself. And ultimately, that's the story of this season. And I think even though it's a very unconventional ending for a season to yeah. end with a training arc, it's even if there was no movie, even if it got fucking canceled, as tragic as that would be, it's the right choice for this season because that's the story they're telling. Is about Because Tanjiro's ultimate heroism is not that he cut Rui's neck. It's that he had the like ferocity of character and the bond with Nezuko and Nezuko had the bond with him to push through that moment. And when he sees pushing through that moment wasn't enough, he keeps pushing, right? Yes. If he was Sisyphus, he'd get that boulder up the fucking mountain. Yeah. No matter. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how many times he had to push it. Yes. It's his, his like the love he has for his family and the love his family has for him. um, And his, his just good old fashioned gumption is what is what saves the day. So in the end, I agree, and I think it's the right choice overall. And obviously, it's it is the story in the manga, so there's kind of no other choice to make. But that's just I kind of wanted to interrogate that for a moment because I do think it's an interesting question. Ultimately, I do agree uh, with you on this. But yeah, that whole moment. Somehow we've talked about all this with episode 19 and not even talked about the most perfect fucking insert song. Like, yes, that is maybe the best use of an insert song in an anime I have seen since Unmei no He. In Dragon Ball Z, which is when mm-hmm. Gohan goes Super Saiyan 2, yeah. which is to me like the patron saint of perfect insert moment songs, this is up there. This is like Unmei no He territory. Holy fuck, it's good. Yeah. So yes, that whole sequence that starts um, where the the threads are closing in on Tanjiro, he has the flash um, of the like his life flashes before his eyes, and that's where you see that he is the child of Lock on Stratus from Gundam Double O Shinichiro Miki. <laughs> Um, uh, and yeah, so you get his little, little kid Tanjiro, who's very adorable, right? And you get the the stuff that, like, you get these little hints that there's something going on with his family and, like, Muzana and stuff, like the earrings. There's something more happening here, um, that you get, like, a little more hints that there's obviously, like, a bigger story going on. Um, but his family, who, like, they say, like, work with fire, um, and I think one thing that was interesting that I noticed when I read the manga, so I read the manga in Japanese, and Tanjiro's name, the first kanji in his name, that Tan, is the same kanji you'd use for coal, um, which is what he's selling. Like, in the first episode, he goes down to the village to sell coal, because that's what his family does. So he's like, and the G is like the kanji for heal, and then no at the end is like a standard sort of like male name ender. Um, so it's like he's like the healing coal boy, um, is more or less what his name means. <laughs> 
But you have this. I'd love it if they had just translated that for the dub. Yes. And he goes around and ends up, and he's just like, "Healing coal boy, help me!" <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and then and then Commodo also is like a word that can mean forge. So that's another like like fire is clearly something connected to him. Uh, Udo Kodaki-san like comments that he has a reddish color to his hair and eyes, which also is like a you know you're a child of the sun or whatever. I forget what they, the specific wording they use. But, like, you have that, like, imagery around the sun and fire and warmth connected to Tanjiro throughout the whole show. Um, and here you get it kind of climaxing where you find out that his father does this dance, this worship dance for the Hinokami, which means the god of fire, Hinokami Kagura. Um, and you have one, you have their, um, like, just the most UFO table thing ever where they fucking rotoscoped. And it's like, you don't yep. see rotoscoping in anything ever. And they're like, we're going to rotoscope this fucking dance um, to make it like really smooth and very striking of his dad dancing amongst these torches. Um, and then that sort of sparks this memory of he was taught as a kid the breathing of this dance and to do this dance. And then that's what sort of activates the Hinokami Kagura Inbu style that he uses to cut through the threads. Um but obviously it's like symbolic. So it's like you have all this like imagery of fire and symbolically it's this like connection he has to his family that gives him the, the, the like vision and the clarity and the ability to cut through. It's this thing that like these bonds and relationships he had his whole life is what gives him those tools. And then it's the same thing. Then you get cut to Nezuko who has a vision of their mother who tells her like, you must, you have to wake up Nezuko or even your brother will die. It's very sad the way it's framed where it's like clearly like her from, you know, whether it's literally that or Nezuko's vision of her, but this vision of the mother from beyond the grave saying, it's like, it's just you two left. Like you have to wake up because if you don't, even Tanjiro will die also. Um, then she wakes up and can use the exploding blood art, which also obviously connected to fire burning away the threads of uh dewey's attack then you get and so this is that's where all the the insert song is playing over all this the insert song then builds up to the chorus um where you have just the most sick fucking sequence where this is all added into the anime that was not in the manga of tanjiro pushing um dewey back and pushing him back and back and back um, with this big spinning 3D camera following them through the forest with the fire lighting up their faces. Um, and that's such a satisfying moment where Tanjiro gets just close enough that Dewey recognizes he's a threat and Dewey has to back away. And that's something that doesn't exist in the manga that I love that moment so much where Dewey actually has to move and be on the defensive. And to me, in many ways, that's where Tanjiro kind of like really wins is this recognition that he is a threat. Right, that he can like touch you. He can be on that level. Um, and then you have the big sword hitting the neck. It explodes. Um, there's an it and they do it from they do it like fucking like Jackie Chan's last stunt in Police Story, where they do it and then they do it again and then they yes. do it again from different angles, and it's so good. Yeah, and one thing that's an interesting detail that is pointed out by the narration in the manga, and I had not noticed in the anime, but they do show it visually is that one of the things that allows Tanjiro to cut through... I mean, he doesn't literally cut through his neck, right? There's, like, that whole thing. But the thing that, like, gives him that last push is that Nezuko's blood dripped onto the sword earlier in the fight sequence, and her blood explodes, propelling his sword even further. So that's yes. one of the reasons why I think they draw the fire in that last slash so differently in the anime, is to sort of give that sense of... That's, like, actual fire. That's, in like, a literal explosion is happening with his sword 
fusing Tanjiro and Nezuko's powers together because it is, of course, their bond that allows them to triumph. Yes. Um, it, it's, yeah. It's because I, I read that manga chapter and there's several things. There's a bunch more like narration and dialogue that Ufo Table smartly took yes. out because this is more of a visual and audio and like music sequence. But there's that. They also in they also explicitly point out that Tanjiro will die because he's planning on doing this cut where his arm is going to get cut by all those threads and he's going to be fucking cut to ribbons, but he'll at least kill the demon yeah. and save Nezuko. And, and the show, like, you can tell that's what's going to happen. And Nezuko obviously has to save him. Um, but they just, they add these things that, like, the show is confident enough that it you will get all of that. You don't need it explained. And it's excellent. Yes. And, and so all this stuff is, like, you know, when we talked about earlier, like, the heart of the shonen like, genre, so much is this feeling of, like, it's about family and friends and, like, bonds with the people around you that will allow you to triumph. And that's, like, your, your like, standard sort of set of themes that these shows are, like, basically always going to do. Um, but I feel like most series just sort of, like, they, those themes are there, and then sometimes they'll be prominent, sometimes they kind of go into the background. But I feel like they're not always really good at, like, actually thematizing it or, like, dramatizing it with the staging of this the the show um in here this is i think is by far the most effective i've ever seen those themes communicated to the audience on an emotional level using the staging and dramatization of what's happening in the plot like the imagery of fire and warmth in the sun connected to tanjiro in his family um i love because it is the right like that's what the demon destroying blade is is it's not the Nichirinto, it's Tanjiro, right? It's the, it's like his warmth as a person is what can like cut out the demon. Um, I mean, we're we're for, we're forgetting to say he doesn't even have a full yes. blade. He's doing it with a fucking broken sword hilt. Uh -huh. Like that's it's really literalizing what you're saying because he does not have enough to cut anything on its own. It's him. Yes, and it, yeah, it's like that warmth and power that he gets from the relationships he has. And I think this is where they leverage that familial connection so powerfully where like i find that smash to credits so emotional where when it smashes to credits mm -hmm. after he cuts off through his head you it is the credits are a different credit sequence you don't have the fiction junction song it is um the it's continuing the song of kamado tanjiro which is the insert song um and it plays over these beautiful drawn hand-drawn um, images of Tanjiro and Nezuko and their family all together, like climaxing in this big family portrait of all of them together. And then um, an image of modern day Tanjiro and Nezuko kind of embracing alone in the middle of a white frame. And, and that sort of visualization of it is these relationships, even the ones that have been cut from his life by these demons that have given him the power to get to where he is. Um, and allowed him to be this person that is full, that is like the embodiment of the sunlight that kills the demons in like human form, basically. I just find it such a beautiful, elegant sequence and a beautiful, elegant episode that so perfectly delivers on these themes that are a part of the series as a whole. Like they're certainly in the manga, but I think like this sequence just gets it down to such a fine point and expresses it so perfectly. 100% agree. If you had, like, been filming me watching this, it could have become a viral reaction uh -huh. video. I was, like, screaming at the TV, like, oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. Like, just like, like, just like, oh, my God. I was, like, leaning forward in my seat. I was, like, half standing by the end of it, just so jazzed by this thing. And then, yeah, the credits are perfect. 
Do you think UFO Table knew that they were going to break the entire anime industry and manga industry with this episode? Like, how key do you think episode 19 is to basically what Demon Slayer has become in terms of its overall popularity? Like, I do think it's important. Like, I, th- I think it's like, yeah. I th- do you think this specific moment in that ending sequence, like, it is, yeah, it is... I there's no way to watch that episode and not come away from it in love, right? Like you just, you yes. have to love that episode. Like it's just impossible not to. It's so powerful on this like raw emotional level. Um, and, and again, it's like tapping into things that are just there throughout the whole show. It's just sort of exposing it so like perfectly and like in this very raw fashion in this one sequence that, yeah, like I, I would be willing to bet quite a lot of money that if you looked up the timing of manga sales, for Kimetsu no Yaiba, yes. I'm sure that there was a pretty big fucking jump after this episode came out. People being like, I need to I need to fucking get this whole thing in my body right now because, oh or, my god. Yes, I like, or even just when you, if you were streaming it and you were binging it, like episode 19 is probably the point where you whip out your phone and start buying all the individual volumes, yes. which leads to Oricon having like 20 of the top 20 year old Kimetsu no Yaiba. Because um, like, I'll just say like, I, I have all of it through the Shonen Jump app, which I subscribe to. It's two bucks a month, and I still don't know how they can charge that much mm-hmm. for it because it's great. Um, and so I'm, I've been looking at it there. But if I didn't, like, I would have probably, like, gone on Amazon and just, like, ordered a whole, like, fucking box of these books after that sequence because I would have been like, I need to inject more of this as just a raw drug into my veins. This is so good. Yeah, it is. It is. So I Yeah, it. it is, like, one of the most standout sequences ufotable has done or ufotable like i think the the only thing that competes is some of the stuff in the heavens field movies i think is like kind of on this level in a different way it's less of a like entirely feel good kind of thing that movie's going for because it's a lot darker but like the same elegance of using animation to express these ideas in this really raw emotional way um so good and man especially after watching those three heavens field movies which are the first movies that that the studio has made since the Kata no Kyokai stuff, which those are also a little bit lower budget because they made a lot of them in a pretty short material, uh, span of time. Um, they made three movies over the course of basically four years, um, and those movies look really ni- fucking nice. And it's like, think about what this fucking Kimetsu Yaiba movie is going to look like, Jonathan. Like, think about this is the t this is the TV show. This is a fucking yeah. TV <laughs> show. Um, like this is this show is like the main thing I was thinking about when we talked about Double O Gundam on Weekly Suit Gundam, and I said that like there's only a couple of small things about the show that shows like visual style that felt slightly out of date to me. And the main thing I was thinking of is like how rich the content of the frame is in a in any given moment in Kimetsu Yaiba with like. 3D elements and post-processing effects and like dust and like motes of dust floating and beams of light in the air. Like all those little elements Mm -hmm. that add so much richness to the visuals of the show is just mind blowing to me. And this is the TV show. (laughs) It's like, what do you, how, how do you top this in a fucking movie when this is what you did in the TV show? I'm very excited to see and find out. Yes, absolutely. I, that's why I'm so excited to see it, you know, as God intended in a fucking movie theater too. It's like, so it's four. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Um, I, I think we're running up maybe on as much time as we can possibly spend on Kimetsu. But do you want to say anything about the closing training arc, which is primarily comedic in tone, but I think is, is re- I mean, it's great comedy. It's well earned after the general darkness of the entire spider arc, which is pretty long. It's like eight episodes. Yeah. Um, and obviously just moves into some really good territory for the characters. And I think that finale 
is a fantastic episode. Yeah, I, yeah, because I think you kind of expressed a lot of how I feel about it. I think it's just such a good kind of denouement to the season that it's you come down from these like this like big emotional high. Um, I think the whole scene with the Hashida and then the man of the manor showing up and them debating about whether they should kill Nezuko, I think that is like such a dynamite sequence. It's so rich with characterization and drama. Yes. I was squirming in my seat when he's fucking torturing mm-hmm. Nezuko. That is hard to watch. Yeah. And that that's like one there I feel like you read that also in the manga and it's like, man, this is like one of those just it's just such a dynamite scene. It's so well constructed and staged and sort of spaced out yeah. um that yeah it's like it's one of the best sequences in the manga as well but yeah i just i really love the characterization of like kano and shinobi shinobu you get there they do add what i'm going to guess this must be later in the manga because it seems like it'd be weird for a thing that the show to make up when they haven't made up extended sequences but that big flashback of kano's backstory of her being like this sort of like vagrant child who's like a slave mm. that is bought that's not in that part of the manga and I'm guessing that backstory is given later. Um, but you have all this. That'd be really weird if it wasn't. Yes, yeah. yeah. But you have all the stuff with like the flipping the coin and all that. All that's. It's just yeah. Like really great characterization I, I think... and just really good humor and expanding the sense of the world and what is going on in Kimetsu with seeing the Hashida and like the upper echelons of what this sort of like dynamic is with the demons and the Demon Slayer core. Yes. Uh, and my other favorite scene in the whole show, behind the scene in episode 19, is the big Muzan Kibutsushi scene in Oh, yes. 6. Oh, my God, yeah. Holy goddamn fuck. And also, if you want to talk about UFO Table doing crazy shit with CGI and 3D space and all of that, his weird realm where it's like fucking MC Escherville, but if MC Escher was a fucked up demon... Uh, it's It goes full Junji Ito, I feel like, at points with just how bloody and fucked up it is. I mean, my God, Sean, that scene is unreal. Yes, no, that is like, um, yeah, that is maybe in many ways the most impressive blend of the 2D and 3D stuff because they lean into the uncanny elements of the 3D camera more mm-hmm. because the, and the manga obviously gives them opportunity because the manga has the whole MC Escher thing. Um, but here you kind of get to explore it with this very kind of disorientating uh, 3D camera. And yes, then I put it for you, Jonathan, in the chat. And again, I'll put a bunch of these gifts when this episode comes up so you can see them on Twitter. Um, but the sequence of the demon trying to escape and he jumps through the whole thing after you've been introduced, kind of coming through that sequence. You go back out through this labyrinthine um, sort of Japanese castle interior and then the guy just gets like sort of grabbed and his head fucking cut off. Um, yes, it's just such potent horror. It's so unsettling and uncanny. Um, and I love the demon who survives, who he's just like, thank you for saving me for last because I so enjoy like screams of pain and terror that I'm just was so, so delectable seeing all these other demons just get brutally murdered by you. Um, and then Kibitsuji Muzan's like, you, you're, you're like the only one of these who's actually like fucking evil. So I'm going to give you a bunch of blood and have you go get, get this weird earring, earring boy for me. It's amazing. And, and that whole final episode, episode 26, it's utterly unconventional as a season uh-huh. ender because it is complete it like again like you in a in a in a like utilitarian sense it's just setting up the movie but it feels like such the right ending for this season because it is so much about that crossroads that Tanjiro is at of we get our first full glimpse of the villain and he is truly terrifying but we also see Tanjiro at like his absolute best in that moment where he flips the coin and like kind of frees this girl yeah. and gives her the coin. It's beautiful. And then all of his his strength with his friends and everything. 
and you see both the immense weight of the evil he is up against and the innate goodness and determination within himself because he's also mastered the total concentration breathing and all of that that these are the things that are going to go up against each other these are the stakes this is they are laying down here without drawing the explicit connection but the connection is putting them in the episode together these are the two forces that are going to hit and who are you sort of betting on and with everything you've seen so far Tanjiro isn't there yet he couldn't go fight Muzan right now but you've seen the the process that's going to allow him to get there and that's why this is the right ending for the season yeah and it's just really smart because it could really easily feel like a crass and now go buy tickets for the movie but it doesn't it makes me want to see the movie very badly but it again if like I don't know if if everyone at UFO table got raptured and it was just gone and there were no anime I'd be very sad it would still be a very satisfying season close. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That I think it it is just sort of thematically wraps things up. Um, and yeah, like because it's very common that you'd have. I mean, you wouldn't have an ending exactly like this because like the training arc thing is like a, that big extended thing. But like it would not be uncommon in another anime that would never have gotten another season of material like this. To, like, have the penultimate episode be the big fight. Then the last episode is, like, they're kind of recovering and joking around a little bit more. And then, like, the last minute or two is a teaser of things that, like, if you've read the manga, you're like, oh, my God, it's, that character is going to be in the big next arc. And then it never gets, nothing more gets adapted. Like, that's super common. Obviously, they already knew they were making the movie when they got to this point with the anime. Um, but it still would, like, as you're saying, if that was just something that unfortunately happened with the show and you just never got more... Um, it feels like it is a strong ending point to the story that's being told within the confines of this season. You also get, you know, you end on, I think, one of the strongest jokes, which is Inosuke not knowing what yes. trains are. And then Tandro goes up and he's like, no, Inosuke, that's not a, like a big dragon monster. This is probably, this might be just the benevolent guardian of this land. And it's like the fact that Tandro doesn't know shit either is so funny. Uh, it's really good. Then he's too to look at him and be like, oh, you're a fucking country bumpkin. It's yes, great. It's, it's a very good joke. And then you do get, you know, your big teaser shot for the movie, which kicks so much ass of the big CG train <laughs> and the camera racing along it. And then it passes Rin Goku, who's sitting like a seat and the camera like goes into slow-mo and you see him as it like the camera goes around him. And then it swoops up on top of the train and goes up to the demon that you saw. I just get all of Muzan's blood and it's like, and now go watch the movie and you're like, fucking A, I want to go watch that movie. You mean it's not going to be out over here in the States for two years? Well, shit. Yes, I will buy a ticket to Japan. Uh-oh, coronavirus, I can't. Um, so good, so good. And, you know, there's a lot we have not had full time to talk about yet. The The musical score for this show is great. The, you know, the, the, every element of this is fantastic. I adore this show, Sean. I am so happy to, uh, like, have this and, and be able to, you know, follow it now through the rest of its life, however long it takes to finish the adaptation. Um, I think right now my plan is that I am going to watch the movie without reading that part in the manga, and then I probably will have to just devour the manga and spoil myself because I don't think I will be able to resist. Yeah, I think that's like it's going to be hard for the next week to not just continue reading the manga. Um, but I do. I, I want to try to just watch the movie fresh, um, and then after that point, yes. yeah, there's absolutely nothing that was is going to stop me from just reading the rest of the manga because the manga is so good. I, and and the anime is such a smart adaptation with like the little things they like I change is almost too strong a word like the adjustments they make in the adaptation that I think even if you've read the manga 
the anime I suspect is going to be super fresh because watching the anime then going to the manga even like basically like almost at the same time which is how I did it this time around like it still felt really fresh reading the manga because there's two really great stories being expressed really effectively in two different mediums yeah that's awesome and maybe we'll have to do a manga episode later this year when we've seen it uh, or when we've read the whole thing but it's awesome I can't wait to experience more of this movie next week thank fucking god it's just so good. <laughs>